This is episode 315 of the Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at their favorite films of the 2010s, what will be on their list, what will not be on their list, all that more. This episode starts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. If you decided to take a chance on this movie podcast and you never uh, had a movie podcast to go to weekly or wanted to listen to conversations about movies, uh, new releases, old releases, you know, blockbusters, indies, whatever, I think you found your right pick, and hopefully you can stick around for this wonderful conversation, especially this episode. I hope this is like the initial episode and you can springboard off of there. If you are a returning listener, Welcome back uh, to the show. You guys are always awesome. This is episode 315. Like I said at the at the top, we will be going over no new releases this week. I know, I know there's someone out there that wanted us to review Harrison Ford talking to a uh, mocap dog, but we're not doing that. Um, and I'm sure we could have, you know, went back last week and talked about Fantasy Island, but we're not going to do that either because we respect you guys. Yes, this is the episode uh, the best films of the 2010s. This is where it all goes down. Uh, mono e mano. Joel and I are going to argue for four and a half hours. That's how long we're going to record. Um, <laughs> no, uh, we're going to give you our list uh, 10 through 1, and it's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of great discussion, but that also means no movie news or movie trailers. So that is your episode. Uh, just before I throw it over to Joel, if you guys want to leave us a voice message, uh, so we could play on the show, answer questions, or just whatever. If we start receiving a, a large amount of them, we'll have kind of like an ending ending section per episode. Uh, if you guys choose to do so, link in the in the description, and then of course uh, there is a support button where you can you know give us funds uh, to make the show a little better for you guys. It's totally up to you, not twisting your arm, but it is there if you want to. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast on any platform out there. Please, please, please spread it around and let people know what is your favorite or this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to. Sorry, guys. Long week. I'll get to that in just a second. Joseph, how is it going, sir? This is a uh, 315. This is the episode. Uh, we I, I've actually never done an episode like this, uh, you know, like the best movies of the 2000 to 2010s. So this is brand new for me, but uh, I'm glad that this is the first decade we get to examine. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, my my week hasn't been as you know quite as long as yours. Uh, <laughs> we'll definitely get to yours in a second. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about this. Uh, you know, it's been you talk about like a you can you can say pretty easily. You know, it's been a good film year. But how do you take that kind of inventory for a decade? I, it's just such a long period of time. And so there's going to be a lot of movies that we don't talk about on this show that certainly people are like, well, why didn't you name this? You know, I tried to not be so much for the recency bias, which some people might be more prone to not judging that just, you know, that's sometimes how people work. Um, But it's been a lot of fun to try to figure out, you know, where does everything lie? And uh, yeah, so it'll be be a nice show it'll be a nice show guys um but yeah my week was pretty uninteresting uh just kind of chilled uh, you know worked and um uh, last weekend was a was a was a sale weekend so 
as soon as, you know, we recorded the episode, I was heavy into that and was just drained of all energy by the time Monday night came. Monday night was the last night of it. And um, I worked, you know, I guess I've been 21 hours of it. So I, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. Um, since then though, you know, I've been able to pretty much bounce back and I've just been, you know, uh, watching the shows that I watch with my parents pretty much. Um, the good doctor had come back. And so we, you know, a couple episodes into that coming back and it's really good. Um, caught up on new Amsterdam, which is the other medical drama show that we're watching. Uh, really, really good show. And, um, and then dad and I, uh, and later mom also watched, uh, it's now two episodes in on Hulu. It's an NBC show, Zoe's extraordinary playlist, which is a musical show, um, about a, about a young business associate, um, executive on the rise who, goes in for an MRI and there's a freak occurrence with the the iPod music that's playing in the room and suddenly she comes out of it being able to read everyone's thoughts except all of those thoughts that they're thinking come out in the form of pre-existing music. Um, and so it's basically their feelings more than their thoughts, I guess. But she's able to read people's minds because of the, uh, through the, um, um, the the mechanism of again, again pre-existing musical numbers, um, and so really interesting. Uh, it's got Jane Levy from the Evil Dead remake, got Skylar Aston from Pitch Perfect movies, um, big time musical theater guy too, I think, and um, Peter Gallagher, Mary Steenburgen, really good cast, really good uh, show, a lot of fun, very likable characters. So only two episodes in. I think the next one is on Monday. We're, uh, we're really enjoying that. Um, I'd say that's it. I, you know, watched a lot of movies this week to review them. And that was, that took up most of my time the last couple days. Um, I did, I can talk about this pretty openly, at least for now. I do have one more review in this probationary period of three reviews, but I have taken something of a, uh, contributorship position it's spectrumculture.com, which is really exciting. Um, uh, fairly high profile, I guess, uh, site that also shares some writers with slantmagazine.com and uh, some other outlets, and that's pretty neat. I've, re I've reviewed already a couple of documentaries. They're, both of those reviews are up. I got the Times of Bill Cunningham and Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, and I also have one already on the way. Uh, for the beginning of March, so that's really exciting. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. Um, there's a probationary period where they're going to figure out whether or not they want me to stay, uh, and that'll be the 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 review at the beginning of March will be the the determining factor. Um, but yeah, I have I have uh, I have hopes for that. So we shall see what happens. But I am I am very excited about that. Um, and that was it. I guess I guess it was more eventful than I thought. Uh, but mostly toward the end. <laughs> mostly toward the end of the week. So, yeah, that was that was my week. 
Yeah, it was a really funny to hear you talk. You're like, uh, it wasn't that eventful. Uh, and then you're like, well, I did all this, all that. Blah, blah, blah. And so, because uh, when you say uneventful, I just imagine Joel just sits in his room, stares at the wall and just like doesn't move. And his parents like come in, Joel, do you want to come eat or like go to the bathroom today? And he just kind of turns his head full 360 like the exorcist and then just close the door. So um, <laughs> that's, that's how I imagine Joel lives when he oh. doesn't work. Um, Interesting insight. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, uh, as people know, uh, you and I are in a relationship, and I, I, I live with you. Remember, we're married, mm-hmm. baby. Okay, see, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, my week was uh, interesting. It's first week of the job. Uh, they don't, I don't think they really care where I tell you where I work. Um, but it's at a law firm, and let's just say the person involved is very, he's very uh, outgoing, and he likes to put himself out there in radio commercials and videos. So have fun searching that. But uh, yeah, I'll be pretty much all over their Instagram and all that stuff. So it's not like I'm hiding myself from the job. I'm all over the place. But I wanted to kind of balance uh, work life. And, you know, I had my screening on Thursday just to see if I can do it. And it's it's going to be interesting. I think once I get used to it, I'll be fine. But um, it, uh, the first week jitters and, of course, not knowing how long it takes to drive everywhere. That's always a, a hassle. But I think I think I've found a correct path for me to balance uh, work and watching movies so I can t- continue to do this for you guys and uh, review everything or at least try to. So uh, I tried that out by seeing a movie on Thursday. Can't review it now. Uh, I can review it, I think, in a couple weeks. Uh, that would be The Greed Movie uh, with Steve Coogan. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, that was the only thing I saw. And then next week, uh, super excited. First A24 film of the year. Uh going to the screening of first cow. Oh man. I can't uh, wait to see that one. Yeah. Really yeah. Good. That one looks really great. Uh, and then also IFC got, got to love my IFC. If there's one distribution company that I love, uh, it is like top three for me. It's IFC because first of all, they will literally put their name on anything, which is awesome because each film is different. And then, you know, they've always worked well with me and, uh, I've always been responsive. For any time they ask me if I want to link to something, I'm like, yes, please. So uh, I'm going to watch that really, uh, really weird one, the Swallow one. <laughs> oh, the... yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One with, uh, uh, hey, is it, no, no, it's not, is it Haley Bennett? I think uh, it's, ha- yeah, Haley Bennett. Yeah, Haley um, Bennett. And uh, yeah, it just, it looks just gnarly and right up my alley. And so yeah. looking forward to that. So I got that in First Cow. But other than that, I don't have anything else booked, uh, which is weird. It seems like this year is a lot slower for invite. I did have one on Monday, but I'm um, hanging out with some of my friends, uh, so I got to skip that one. It was Burden, uh, Forrest mm. Whitaker, Garrett Hudlin. So, uh, yeah, it is what it is. But I did balance it out correctly, and I think I can do this uh, just fine for you guys, and I shouldn't have any problem. I watched my typical stuff throughout the week in terms of TV shows. Uh, McMillions on HBO is just getting more fascinating each week. And I cannot believe they just let that thing go on as long as it did. It's just crazy. Um, which is ironic because they're having monopoly at the uh, grocery store chains right now. So I'm like, is this one rigged? Uh, please raise your hand. If this one is rigged, please tell me. Um, but yes, uh, that typical week saw greed. Um, and you guys will get that review in two weeks. Joel, I think it is time. I have thought about this list for weeks. I have many different 
kind of aspects as to why I chose the way I chose, and I'll get to that when I get to me. But, Joel, I think it's time. You are, uh, you've been on this show half as long, so I want to give you the first pick uh, of the decade, sir. Lead us off. Yeah, so before that, I mean, I just wanted to ask you um, real quick, before we get into my choice, because I'm going to talk about how difficult, difficult it was for me. Was it difficult to make this list, or did our talking about some of the movies earlier in the year help help you out because uh, we we did this uh, people who didn't listen last year may not know but we kind of went through a lot of our top fives well really top tens uh <laughs> we 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 fashioned them as top fives but we talked about 10 movies every time um our top tens of each year kind of before my period of being on the show so 2016 back uh through 2010 which is about three years before this show even existed uh, did that help you in kind of at least narrowing down some of those options that you had? Uh, did you rewatch anything? I know that you're busy. Um, did what was your what was your um, approach to this list? Was it was it pretty intimidating? So I had about uh, and Joel is absolutely correct. Uh, I laugh in Joel's face anytime we asked if I rewatched anything. Uh, that would that would be a no, right? A very a very hard no, but a no, a no nonetheless. I didn't, I didn't expect you to have right, right. Uh, but the movies I picked are very instilled into my memory, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's that's one of the reasons why I picked them is because of how ingrained they are into uh, the way I think, the way I review movies. Like they have been very impactful. Yeah, stay, uh, staying the, power is about ninety percent of this. Uh, exactly, <laughs> it's uh, it's staying yeah. power, theater experience. Mm-hmm. You know how was it uh, culturally? Like everything, I put everything underneath the sun, and I'm like, this is why it's one of the best. But I actually had about, I think, thirty or fifty picks. Yeah, it's super hard to whittle it down and be like, wow, I got to get rid of this. But you know, there's just this one holds that extra kind of special place in my heart. So. Yeah, it, it was tough, uh, but I just I kind of looked at all different corners of, you know, uh, cultural impact, staying impact for me, theater experience, rewatchability, all that stuff. And I think I have made a pretty great list. Uh, it's going to be very weird when you hear my 10 and then hear my one. You're going to be like, wow, what a weird bookend. But uh, I'm excited. Yeah, and, and, you know, like with you, I probably had a good 40 to 50 that I kind of whittled down to, I guess, a top 30. And, I, and then 20 of these were honorable mentions. Um, I'm just going to run through those real fast. I won't say anything about them, but I felt incomplete without talking, you know, mentioning the names. So, like, my honorable mentions, I had Birdman, Blue is the Warmest Color, Call Me By Your Name, Creed, Exit Through the Gift Shop, 45 Years, A Hidden Life. How to Train Your Dragon, Killing Them Softly, Lincoln, Manchester by the Sea, The Master, Parasite, Phoenix, Shame, The Souvenir, Tony Erdman, Two Days, One Night, Vice, and then (laughs) my one blockbuster pick across all the 30, the one that I chose, War for the Planet of the Apes. I just felt was probably the best blockbuster of the decade, and so I had to put it here somewhere. Uh, and it fell outside the top 10, but it's it's certainly high up there. And so those are the movies people are probably kind of like, wow, you know, those didn't make your top 10. So what made your top 10? Um, okay, so 
out of all of the 10 films that I have in my top 10, my number 10 is what I like to call the one that I found the most pleasurable on a purely movie, movie level. And when you say movie, movie, both of those uses of movie have to be um, uh, capitalized, right? Like just the, the M at the beginning of the word has to be capitalized. Movie, movie. It's the one that you 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 think about for, you know, maybe it's not the deepest plot, uh, although there are a lot of surprises in it. Maybe it's maybe the characters aren't the most you know complex of all of the characters included in movies on my list, but it's a movie that just gave me so much joy watching it, experiencing it for the first time at a at a screening. I saw this I think about a week before it opened, um, which I was super you know I've seen movies now much farther out than that. I was super excited about that when it when it um, when we did that. Uh, me and a couple friends, it opened a week later. And I was able to see 2011's Drive uh, from director Nicholas Winding Refn. That is my number 10. Um, this one is, is the one starring Ryan Gosling as a driver who is uh, who moonlights as a getaway driver when he's not the stunt driver on a big studio production, uh, any given big studio production during the day. And he gets caught up with the mob, uh, represented by Albert Brooks as a slimy former movie producer and an affable Ron, Perl- Ron Perlman as his second-in-command. Com- second um, you know, the, the, uh, the involvement with the mob happens when he intervenes on the behalf of a man played by Oscar Isaac in kind of one of the first big roles that broke him through, um, who is married to the woman played by Carrie Mulligan in another breakout role, uh, on whom this driver has a crush. And I just felt like the sexy kind of sleek, expressive style uh, that's that recalled the neo-noirs of people like Walter Hill, William Friedkin, certainly Michael Mann in some ways, of this movie really opened up Winding Refn's style to be maybe a bit more friendly to audiences. Now, not every audience. I mean, we, we all remember the hilarious story of the woman who sued um, the studio to uh, because she thought that it was going to be the Fast and the Furious movie and, uh, and subverting her expectations. They were certainly in for maybe something more challenging than a Fast and the Furious style mass appeal blockbuster. But I think that that's, it's all the better for it. Um, this is not a you know, this is not always an easy movie to watch in terms of its content. There's a lot of graphic violence, but there is a lot of real style, um, just a marriage of like content and form that is just absolutely gorgeous in every way. The cinematography is beautiful. The, uh, the performances are all great. You know, whenever we talked about our, our, uh, best performances, Ryan Gosling in this role was certainly in the conversation for that for that list. Uh, he was probably right outside it, and it's because he captures sort of the stoic, uh, the stoic brute with a kind of almost um, there's a charm to him that's very subtle, but there's also this puppy dog quality almost that's really interesting that breaks, of course, when. He has to be violent, but this is about a man who's trying to escape violence 
and usually Winding Refn's characters are all about violence, and I love that. Um, this followed up Bronson and Valhalla Rising for Winding Refn, and it was followed up itself by um, Only God Forgives in 2013 and The Neon Demon in 2016, as well as in 2018, I believe, a series that I didn't see called Too Young to Die with uh, Miles Teller. Um, and Winding Refn really kind of um, introduced himself this past decade as a, as a director to watch, for sure, in terms of his style. Now, it ends up having been pretty divisive, but for me, I definitely fall on the, uh, the pro side, pro, pro Refn, if you will, um, because this just gave me so much pleasure to watch and luxuriate in the style of it. And that's why, for me, out of all the movies this decade that did a similar thing like that, it's the one that shows up on this list, and it's certainly the one that I enjoyed the most of those kinds of movies. I mean, it has the same kind of qualities as something like Miami Vice, uh, the Michael Mann's Miami Vice from 2006, which if you would have asked me my top 10 films of the 2000s, I might have made room for that one at number 10 in the 2000s because I love that film. and It sort of has a similar quality. It's just a lot of expressive, uh, atmospheric, sleek, and sexy filmmaking that is just abs- an absolute treat to watch. So, number ten, Drive. I'm gonna, I'm gonna think maybe you're probably gonna pass on this. Uh, no, I'll talk okay. about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, a uh, couple of the honorable, uh, some of the honorable mentions that you know, just give you guys a sense of some of the ones that just kind of left on the cutting room floor. You know, stuff like Drive. Uh, Three Identical Strangers, uh, Life Itself, uh, Blue Valentine, You Were Never Really Here, Toy Story 3, Black Swan, The Revenant, Hereditary, Dunkirk. I mean, it's uh, it it, it was a lot. And there was a lot more uh, after that. But those were like the these were like the last like, you know, uh, uh, 20 or so that just uh, didn't make the cut. So when I say my number 10, a lot of people are going to roll their eyes that's fine it, it is what it is the, the, my list and joel's list are not going to satisfy anyone so we're basically just speaking to each other um it's okay guys i roll my eyes at chase every single day it's it's okay that's, okay. that's true <laughs> uh, that's true but uh for number 10 i looked at it like this because this is our own personal list and i looked at it as this accomplishment not only for the industry, but I do think it's an accomplishment in storytelling, weaving as many films as it did together. And of course, you know, ending the way it did with this kind of like finite ending, which is worrying for the future movies coming up. It, it had everything I wanted. Is, is it the best one? I don't think it's the like very best one. But it's so close with my favorite one that I'm going to go ahead and give the uh, the uh, upper hand to uh, Avengers Endgame. Hmm. And I, I think in terms of superhero fare, and it's not my only one on this list, and I think Joel knows where I'm going with that. Um, it's my only big blockbuster on this list, and I wanted to give a nod to at least one big blockbuster that was personal to me is a feat in filmmaking, a feat in storytelling, weaving 23 films uh, together, like or 22, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home is the 23rd, but 
Um, just weaving all this story together, getting the commitment out of these actors to play these roles and actually elevate these characters as movies progress. I go back and forth on Endgame and Infinity War in terms of which one's my favorite. But I think Endgame, just thinking about it, and you know, it's also a feat in editing. Uh, that three hours just runs by for me. It is one of the my favorite theater experiences I've ever had. And that goes for most of these on this list. But to me, if we're talking about what has made an impact in that decade, impact on me is actually a pretty dang good movie filmmaking wise. I'll go ahead and give the mega blockbuster, the only mega blockbuster on my list. This is the one uh, Avengers Endgame is my number 10. Interesting, because I know that it didn't show up on your top ten last year. Um, so that's, that's true, so that's but funny. but yeah. it's like it's like it's like you said. It's like once you start sitting down and really think, because this episode is the permanent episode. Joel, you yeah. can't change your list. <laughs> so when you think about your list, you have to like think about everything. Yeah. And so I just I thought about it and I was like, I got to give a nod to either this or Infinity War, and I went ahead and chose this one. Nice, nice. All right. Well, my number nine is a movie that just really delighted me. Um, but it's also incredibly thoughtful about kind of the state that we're in now. Although it was, although it seemed a little bit ahead of its time when it did come out. Uh, and that is Her from director Spike Jones, um, 2013 film that uh, starred Joaquin Phoenix as this very middling, very dull man who decides to produce a new kind of operating system that is an evolving operating system. I believe it's called an interpretive operating system in the movie voiced by Scarlett Johansson, um, who comes to call itself Samantha. And uh, they learn about each other. And the, the, this operating system is also uh, clever, intuitive, and ultimately sensual as they develop a relationship. And I just felt like every instance of this movie um, trying to build a very near future that um, that was brought to life through the production design. Beautiful production design from K.K. Barrett, uh, who also just did Birds of Prey, um, was even just right on target with the film's thematic core, which is that this is a really kind of absurd and almost awkward, but certainly unforgettable relationship that kind of defines what our relationships are now to our phones uh, in a certain way, especially as smartphones became even more of a, you know, uh, of a handy tool uh, throughout this decade. They certainly didn't start the decade as useful as they ended the decade. And this felt like something that was entirely possible. Um, And for me, Jones, who is one of the great cinematic humanists of modern cinema, um, you know, through movies like Where the Wild Things Are and um, and being John Malkovich, I, I just I just love this filmmaker and an adaptation as well. Just love this filmmaker, love this concept. I love Phoenix's performance, which is just curious, so curiously matched to Johansson's, considering that Johansson was not the original voice. And in fact, Phoenix was interacting with uh, Samantha Morton, who was replaced in post-production when the, uh, when Jones and and his team realized that she just didn't quite fit 
the 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 voice didn't quite fit. They went with Johansson. Uh, we'll talk about Johansson in a little bit um, with another one of my choices. But she has this thing that she does with her voice that's uh, and this is not a criticism; it's an ob- observation where she where her voice is very flat and expressionless, and it only really modulates when the actress deems it necessary. And it's something that she used really well in her role as Black Widow in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's something that she does well here as she voices literally a machine that comes to uh, recognize certain things about humanity and itself. And uh, yeah, I just love how everything about this movie unfolded. And it's just, yeah, it's a gorgeous piece of work. So love it. Number nine is Her. Yeah, with her, it's interesting because that was the first film you and I ever had that discussion about with uh, – because you have that rule. If it goes within the first 30 days of the new year, Mm. then it counts as last year. And that's where you and I had that discussion because I saw her in the middle of the month (laughs) when it came out. And I told you I was not going to count it because that's that's just my personal preference and – you thought opposite. So I remember having that conversation with you about it, but yeah, her is just once again, another fantastic example of uh, Mr. Phoenix doing his thing. And uh, he got his Oscar for Joker uh, with all these other previous works behind it, which he should have won for uh, earlier, but you know, it is what it is, but uh, yes, her is, it's just a wonderful love story. I bought that thing on Blu-ray as soon as it came out and, uh, I rarely do that anymore, but uh, that's a that's a great pick. Um, with my number nine, I uh, I'm not afraid of crying in a theater. I'm really not. Uh, I remember uh, one of my favorite press screenings I've ever went to. It's for the Fault in Our Stars. I walked out of that thing. I gave him my comment card. It probably looked like I was smoking. Because my eyes were so red and so just dried out from just crying in that that movie that uh, I was embarrassed uh, to look like that. But I was like, you know what? I'm proud because I I didn't hold back because I was supposed to. I just let it flow, let the emotions free. And I did the same thing for my number nine pick. And I still think uh, it it is one of the most mature things – Pixar has done. Uh, I think it is one of the most adult things it has ever done. And I still believe it even to this day. And this came out five years ago and I still hold, hold by this statement. Um, it, it's a great introduction to psychology of emotions for kids. And mm. that's why I'm going to go with inside out as and it's my only animated film on the list. That's why I, I, as you guys are noticing a pattern now, I had uh, basically locked them into you know certain almost certain genres, and that's the best one, and that's the one that affected me. And you know, as the years went on, you know they just got better and better. And I honestly thought that like t- nothing could beat Toy Story three, and that was back in two thousand ten. That was the beginning of the decade. I was like, there's no way they're going to beat it uh, with uh, how mature they're making these films. And then I saw Coco and I was like, they straight up murdered someone on screen. And uh, now they're just like slowly turning into this like grindhouse studio. Uh, <laughs> now uh, that, w- that would be funny though. Um, but yeah, Inside Out, it, 
it's wonderfully animated. It's the story is just told so beautifully about all these emotions, which by the way, great voice casting on their part. Uh, Amy Poehler, uh, Lewis Black, uh, Minnie Kaling, Bill, uh, Bill Hader and um, uh, Phyllis, right? Phyllis uh, Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Phyllis Smith. Yeah. Cause she was one of the actors in the office who actually used her, her, her real name. So, uh, but yeah, really wonderful voice uh, cast and just the, complexity of how emotions are and how the brain works and just everything that has to do with us as human beings. And, you know, Joel and I are idiots. We're not, we're not scientists. We're not doctors. Like we don't know how far, you know, the human mind works. We just know kind of on a surface level. And there's people out there smarter than us that know how things function. Uh, even you know more complex than we'll ever comprehend but this film kind of touches upon stuff that might be confusing for a kid where one of my favorite messaging uh messages in the film is that you know they try to suppress sadness the whole time and just like kick her out of the group and like don't allow her to be there and like just because she's sad all the time and at the very end you know they tell each other like it's okay to be sad it's okay to be uh fearful it's okay to be grossed out it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be happy all at once like this is not it's not some finite emotion that you're supposed to feel all the time you can feel a little bit of everything and guess what that's what makes us human Mm. and i just thought that being told in a colorful and vibrant environment for kids is a smart way to do that because Pixar is always uh, maybe besides the cars films. uh, (laughs) Well, some of the, some of the themes in cars one, I think applies to the maturity level, but the other two, uh, whatever. But for the most part, most of their movies are directed towards kids for sure, but adults can enjoy them as well. They treat their kids, not dumb. You know, they, they treat them with respect and knowing that they can get these, really um, mature themes going on. And I just thought Inside Out was really beautifully told. It was my second favorite film of that year. Uh, So obviously it's got some staying power. Uh, Bing Bong is still one of my saddest times I've cried in the theater, like super Mm. hard. I mean, when I was uh, watching Inside Out, I'm sure everyone thought it was creepy because I was the only one without a kid in there. And uh, I was, like, smashed in between, like, two families. It was so awkward. But um, I just like the fact that I can enjoy it with someone who doesn't have kids right now. I'm glad that kids could enjoy it uh, and make their brains work, uh, have them start thinking about certain things, and having the adults enjoy it, too. And it's it's one of the best animated films of all time. I will throw it out there. I think it's definitely a top three for Pixar. Um, I still haven't made that list, but I, I, it would definitely be a top three at this point. It's it's something special, man. And I really hope um, – because that, that was the turning point for me uh, inside out where I was like, okay, I like the route that they're going. So I hope they make more impactful stuff like this, like especially with this and Coco. So uh, – oh, that and that's another thing. Like when you look at movies like Soul coming out later this year, it looks like they're also going to tap into some greatness. So – uh, inside out, Joel. Uh, you you a little surprised by that? What's going on over there? I I am I am. Uh, but I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. It's great. It's like you said. It's certainly top three or four 
Pixar for me. Um, my favorite animated movie of the year was How to Train Your Dragon, which I mentioned outside the list. So I don't have any animated films on my list, um, which probably makes me a curmudgeon, uh, and that's okay. I'm I'm fine with that. Um, but it's great. well, but it's but great. at least at least I like you know I love your pick, uh, and I love that whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. You love my pick, so it's not like we chose uh, what like the Penguins movie or something, <laughs> like you know. We, we, we chose great ones. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, my number eight is kind of the most famous uh, instance of uh, people wanting a movie to win Best Picture the entire decade, I would say, which is The Social Network uh, from 2010, directed by David Fincher. Um, this is the story of the creation of Facebook as told by way of almost an Orson Wellesian kind of uh, – Story of a lonely king isolating himself on the throne as he amasses more and more power and privilege and pushes away those closest to him. Uh, And that would be Mark Zuckerberg, creator of um, Facebook, although in this film he's just a Harvard genius, uh, played by Jesse Eisenberg, um, who is also kind of a misanthrope and and, uh, develops a way of ranking the hot women of his school and then decides that he's going to go further when approached by a pair of twins played by Armie Hammer in an impressive, very impressive dual performance um, to create a uh, kind of a Harvard Facebook online. Facebook was already uh, an existing word before it became Facebook.com as we know it. Um, And uh, this world is brought to life not only by Fincher, but also by screenwriter Aaron Sorkin adapting a nonfiction account by Ben Mesrick. And also editors Angus Wall and Kirk Baxter, uh, cinematographer Tre- uh, Jeff, well, uh, Jeff Cronenweth, and composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Basically, it's one of the best crews to work on a movie the entire decade, and they make a movie that is just imminently watchable in every single way. Um, it was the best film of 2010 for me, and um, I think that it is almost kind of a deceptively deep movie there is a lot going on underneath the surface of this thing that is that has i think become ignored almost in the years since Uh, it's not just a great procedural about the creation of facebook it's also a uh, tremendously complicated uh structural experiment too uh in terms of its editing flaw uh, flawlessly cutting between three timelines or maybe two and a half on on balance um, as we see the creation of Facebook in the past. And then in the present, there's two separate lawsuits that are developing from the creation of this, including by the eventual CFO, uh, Eduardo Saverin, played by Andrew Garfield. And I just love how this thing moves, uh, how it looks, how it sounds, the score and the, and the soundtrack. In general, something that we listen to a lot at work, um, the performances are all just pitched perfectly. Um, the dialogue is, you know, usual Sorkin dialogue, very reference-heavy, very quip-heavy, um, extremely terse. Uh, everybody's saying every single word that's written because that's how Sorkin works. Yeah, I love this movie, and I think that it's, uh, I think it's a great one. I think it's one that people are going to be talking about with the same breath that we currently talk about Citizen Kane and, you know, 50 years from now. Uh, so I, I just, I love it. Yeah. My number 10, my number eight, sorry, is the social network. 
Joel, I have to ask you a question. Do you know me pretty well? I do know you pretty well. Are you going to pass on this one? <laughs> it, it sounds like you're correct, sir. Uh, so, uh, yeah, social network is an interesting pick. Uh, interesting pick, Joel. Um, yeah, I'm going. I'm going to take a very hard pass on that. So, my number eight. Uh, I mentioned a performance last week. Uh, last week's episode. Once again, uh, don't worry, folks out there. If you were uh, uh, getting worried. This is my last, like, I guess, big-ish film in terms of, uh, well, yeah, uh, last, like, uh, you know, well-known film to where, like, you know, if people saw, like, three or four movies a year, they would know this pick. But if I mention, you know, uh, seven through one, some of them might be like, what? What's that? So uh, don't worry. I'll get to some of the indie stuff. So don't don't you worry now. But uh, my number eight, I think. Still, it's it's one of the best. In the, I think it is the best in the genre. I think that's why I'm putting it on here. Uh, it, it holds a place in the same level as like the Dark Knight. Yes, I'm going there. I'm going with Logan. Uh, I, I don't care. It was my favorite film of that year. Um, it features the best performance that Hugh has ever given as that character. Best performance that Patrick Stewart has ever given that character. Really stripping down the superhero genre and make it more of a Western a character study, graphic violence, uh, just this R-rated grit to it that uh, was radically different than something like a Deadpool because Deadpool uh, was the first one out of the Fox, you know, brand to do that. It was, it was edgy. It was uh, there were swear words, there was blood, and it was cool to watch. But it was nice to see uh, another R-rated take on a character, but make it more kind of grounded. Uh, in some type of realism, even though we're dealing with a guy that can, you know, poke out some really sharp claws out of his knuckles, it still had that grounded feel. I didn't feel like I was watching a superhero film. It was just this uh, wonderful character study about two characters at the end of their road. And it, it ends perfectly. Um, I think all of the satisfying deaths are definitely warranted. Uh, they're not shoehorned in to uh, extract emotions. It was you know, it made sense for the story, which made the journey even harder to watch. And getting those performances out of those actors is just quite stunning. But I didn't expect anything less uh, from the gentleman that brought us, you know, like 310 to Yuma before that. And, of course, like Ford v. Ferrari from last year, James Mangold. He is a fantastic uh, director, a real, um, a real visionary uh, to make sure that he creates stories that uh, about characters that we care about and that we go along this journey with, even if they're superheroes or not. Um, yeah, it, it's it, obviously it's it's uh, higher than my number ten slot, but Logan is the uh, best superhero film uh, in, in this decade, bar none. Uh, I don't. I don't even want Joel to refute that i don't even want him to argue with me about that it is what it is him and mark had to hear me talk about it for like 30 minutes straight when we did our uh best of the year in 2017 so thank you for that but um this will be the last time i talk about it for a while but i do think in terms of since you know joel kind of brought it up with the social network and really kind of seeing where this film is gonna lie down the line with uh you know younger viewers or uh, older viewers going back and stuff. I really do think it will be examined and people are going to be like, wow, I can't believe, especially if like there is a 
really hard-shelled person that just hates all superhero films. I do think this one's accessible to people. Case in point, uh, the guy I brought to my screening when I went to Logan, he's not into the Marvel stuff. He's not into the DC stuff. Like He barely likes anything. I'm not even exaggerating. He maybe likes one or two things a year and like he's just really picky but even he loved logan and i saw it for free at a press screening i paid for it uh again when it came into theaters i bought it and i watched it and then i also watched it a fourth time in the black and white version it's just a film i will never ever ever get tired of and so logan's my number eight and uh, i'm happy to put it there so if you were worried don't worry it's my last biggish one, so it's it's all good from here, folks. Just uh, I, I know I know as I Joel, I'm telling you, as soon as I said Endgame, people stopped listening. They're like, "Oh my god, this guy hasn't seen any <laughs> movies ever." So uh, yeah, uh, the Logan is uh, number eight. Well, it's just because you're such a basic viewer. I, I am basic, Joel. I <laughs> am basic, and don't you da- don't you dare throw that in my face. I am basic. Just deal with it. <laughs> Totally okay. It's a great point. It's a great pick. I I would have been surprised if it wasn't on your list. And whenever you listed some of your honorable mentions and it wasn't there, I was like, yeah. So it's it's probably on his list. Uh. So yeah. No, I, I don't have any issues with that. Um. If we can move from from the movie that you that me and Mark had to hear you talk about for half an hour, then uh, we're gonna move on from your favorite film of 2017 to my number seven, which is my number one film of 2017, which is the one that you guys had to listen to me talk about for half an hour. And that's Lady Bird uh, from director Greta Gerwig. I, I've talked about this movie a lot, so you know, I'm not going to like um, hammer it in even more. I just... This movie, I I just adored this movie. I, I just... I loved every second of this movie. I think that um, it reveals itself to be even more meaningful on further viewings. And I've seen it quite a few times uh, since it came out. Uh, this is the one that stars Saoirse Ronan, who, whose character would like to go by the name Lady Bird. Thank you very much. Although her name is Christine and uh, she's just, you know, going through her last year uh, of high school in Catholic school before uh, she goes off to college and uh, she just kind of experiences certain things that you experience when you're in that transition period, uh, including a relationship with her parents, played by Tracy Letts and Lauren Metcalf, uh, Lori Metcalf, sorry. Uh, and, you know, she has a couple of best friends, including one played by Beanie Feldstein and another played by Odia Rush and a couple of boyfriends played by Timothy Chalamet and Lucas Hedges. Um you know, she just comes to realize a lot about herself, the world around her, the fact that she really doesn't know everything because when you're 17, you think you know everything. And uh, 17 or 18, however old she was here. Um, and, uh, you know, this is Gerwig's first solo venture behind the camera. It kind of, kind of counted as a debut because she was credited as a director of one of those small kind of mumblecore projects that she was known for in the late 2000s called Nights and Weekends. But those are kind of loosey-goosey. Anybody really could have been a director on one of them because they're all working together. She was credited. This is kind of her first, you know, real solo kind of venture behind the camera. And it was a really impressive one, Um, particularly because of Saoirse Ronan's performance in the title role. 
which is just beaming and lovely and uh, a joy to watch at all times. Uh, somebody who's stripping away at all the flotsam that has defined her character. And by the end, when everything comes together with that phone call that we were talking about last week, it just, it just is a great payoff. And I just think it's a special movie. Uh, we don't get, you know, coming of age movies like this, uh, with this level of observance, um, very often. And I think that, you know, there's one that I missed that I really hate the fact that I missed it. And I'm, I am going to catch up with it. And that's the edge of 17, which I've heard great things about over the years. And I know, you know, I've heard from people that I trust that that would certainly be kind of near the top for me uh, of, of coming of age films uh, from this last decade. But other than this one, I mean, you know, films like uh, call me by your name, as well as another one we're going to get to that also have to deal with um, uh, with gay relationships uh, certainly kind of exist, although the, I think that those are primarily romances. In terms of coming-of-age projects, you have movies like um, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is a tremendously special movie that's just outside my top 30. Um, and, you know, movies even about younger people like The Florida Project. Uh, but this, for me, maybe with one exception, maybe with one exception that we'll get to, I think is the best one of those this decade. Uh, just pure coming of age, somebody actively reaching the point of adulthood and having learned something after that, uh, uh, by that point. Uh, this one for me was the best. And I just think that it's, it's great. Um, I love every second of it. I've loved every second of it since I saw it, um, you know, like a month before it came out. It was a lot of fun to be able to do that. It was a Friday morning or Thursday morning screening and, it was just a great joy. Um, you know, as soon as I saw it, I knew that I'd, that I'd see something special. Um, and uh, I certainly did. So, yeah, number seven, uh, you're probably not surprised. Maybe you're surprised it's not even higher. But I'm sure that you're not surprised to see this on the list, right? <laughs> right. I, I, I kind of I, – I had a feeling it was going to be, like, bottom ten for you just because, like, you – your top five is probably going to be way different than mine. So I was like, right. let me let me just assume that he's going to put, like, the more, I guess, well-known indie films in the bottom ten, and then we'll go from there. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is definitely a Joel Copeland pick. I can't really argue with that. So, <laughs> Well, thank um, you. That, that is actually a great compliment. I, I, I do take right. It. Thank you. Listen, if, if you can listen to me and hear me, uh, you know, you know, talk at nauseum about certain movies that you just eye roll at. I don't eye roll at Lady Bird, but I will let you have your platform, sir. And you can just just love away. Um, that is what <laughs> we're here to do. But uh, my number seven, I've told this story before, but I'll say it again, just in case if you uh, this is your very first time listening to the show. Uh, so bear with me if you have heard it. But. You know, I was uh, sitting in my apartment, didn't really know what to do with my life. Uh, that I still can't believe I was in this apartment, by the way, because this was like f- five living spaces ago. But um, I was in my apartment, didn't really know what to do. You know, I talked to a certain gentleman uh, through YouTube and we loved movies and we even collabed on a couple of movie reviews and stuff. This was 2014, I believe. And so... It might have been 2013. Uh, I can't remember because there there was you know the window of time before the movie goes in theaters until where uh, it comes out. But I forgot. But um, I had never seen a certain trilogy before, and I remember watching all three in one night. I remember going to work the next day, 
super tired and uh, I hated myself for it. But you know what? That is what coffee is for. And so it was all good there. But it was totally worth it when I saw the before trilogy. So you automatically know I was going to put one of those in there. Uh, So the third one before midnight is the pick because that is the only one uh, in the decade, which is great because each one of them are in a different decade, which is blows my mind. But um, I'm hoping the next one uh, when they're all in a retirement home uh, link later can make that this year (laughs) or or, (laughs) this decade. But uh yeah, Before Midnight's a great film, guys. And I will I will sit here and I will, you know, scream out into the void or whatever podcast void this is and let you guys know that Before uh, Sunrise, Sunset, and Midnight is is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, romance um, story ever told on film through three separate uh, films. We have, you know, the initial meetup in the first one. We have the second one where they go away after a while and they come back. And then in this one, uh, sorry to spoil it, but it's been a while. But they are now married, have kids, and they're just talking about life at this stage in their life. Uh, all in different important stages in their life and how they see um, not only themselves, uh, but also what they see in a relationship with the other person and how they perceive life uh, given the age and time that they're in. But Before Midnight is a special one for sure. Uh, Sometimes I go back and forth between this one and the second one, but the third one is special in a way that we have, first of all, we have kids involved. We have them kind of losing their spark, um, which is really sad to watch, even uh, towards the end of the film when they're trying to make it work as hard as possible, but it's just not clicking. And you're sitting there, you know, looking at this as an audience member, already seeing the first two movies, and you're like, there's there's just nothing that could go wrong. These two are meant for each other. But even them, who had such a strong connection, even they have trouble. And there's just this kind of somber cloud hanging over the entire third movie. And even towards the end of the movie... It's not even set in stone in terms of uh, if they're going to make it or not. It's just kind of up in the air. And that's what's really, really sad about it. And if if Linklater wants to make a fourth one, I can only imagine that's just going to get uh, more depressing from here. But um, I would say as a third film in this uh, story, it evolutionizes the growth of these characters to – where you would think they would grow to. It makes sense uh, given their relationship and the age and the performances are so wonderful from Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Um, this is the second, you know, one that they all three wrote together. And uh, this is the one that were nominated for probably should have won that year. Um, but um, it didn't. And yeah, it's a, it's a special three films guys. Um, but if there was a before movie in there uh, in the decade and it's it, it's something that blows you away, then it's going to make a list like this. So before midnight is my number seven. Nice. I, I love it. Uh, you know, we talked a, a little bit about it last week when you had um, Hawk and Delpy on your performance list and it's a uh, great series, great conclusion or whatever. Hopefully they do make another one. I'm hoping they surprise everybody. And just- I, I really do. I, yeah. I think, because a lot of people think that before midnight it just closes the chapter on this book, mm-hmm. and I, I 
I, there's so much more story to tell. Delby and Hawk are not that old. Right. You can easily make enough. You I mean, can make it would be more. it would be in 2022 if they're gonna do it because it's every nine right. it's every nine years and you know somehow and I don't want to be like a downer when it comes to this series. You know, we all want only great things for Jesse and Celine. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised given Linklater's track record of not uh, just like being friendly in his appeasement of his of his audiences pretty much unless he's you know doing a comedy or something i wouldn't be surprised if he like comes into the story and they're and they're divorced just because there were those there were those those kind of droplets of doubt in their in their relationship in the in this last movie and you know if he's going to remain honest to that you know i just wouldn't be surprised if there may be uh, divorced, but still friendly. And, you know, we're just, because uh, as we know, we're tracking the relationship more than we're tracking the romance, if that makes sense. Because of course they came back into each other's lives and before sunset, you know, it wasn't like we were then picking up with them being around each other. Um, we just picked up with their random, you know, uh, randomly seeing each other, uh, so it's that, more it's actually, more about the relationship than the romance, which it, which makes it even right. more romantic. Um, so, me, so I have to I have to ask you this because this is a really and kind of important thing that you kind of brought up. I know he's touched upon it in his movies, and you know a little bit more in Boyhood. But has Linklater ever focused on divorce as like a central? like anchor point for his story? Uh, I don't think central. I mean, it, it factored into a lot of boyhood. Um, right. Just because of the mom character uh, who was, you know, involved with various people, including Ethan Hawke and, um, and the other, I forgot the other actors, but the other, the other men uh, that kind of come into, to um, Eller Coltrane's life in that. Uh yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's been a central thing for him. There's a lot of his movies I haven't seen. I will admit, I haven't seen like some of his. I mean, some of his smaller stuff like Tape. I haven't seen right. um, his rotoscope projects, Waking Life and uh, A Scanner Darkly. I haven't seen those. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen a lot of his comedies and and whatnot. Um, School of Rock and Bad News Bears and and Bernie and whatever, but. Uh, but yeah, I can't really think of one that that does uh, feature that. Um, oh, and I've also seen Me and Orson Welles. Random plug for Me and Orson Welles. If you've not seen that movie, it's great. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was the one that he 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 kind of had otherwise this huge break between Fast Food Nation, which I also haven't seen, and Bernie in uh, 2006 and t- 2012. And right in the middle of that, people tend to forget that he did make a movie, and it was called Me and Orson Welles, and it had Zac Efron and Christian McKay. Um, and it was great. Uh, so definitely go, everybody go check that out. But, um, but yeah, no, I can't think of one. I can't think of one that did. So it would be interesting if he did make that. I'm just saying, I wouldn't be surprised if he and Hawk and Delpy come together, realize, well, maybe what we should do is at least for now, kind of, you know, we're checking in on them and it just so happens that sometime within the last nine years, they got divorced. (laughs) And they remain friendly, and so we kind of um, go through that process. Uh, it just wouldn't it just wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it would depress me just a little bit because again, we all only want what's best for them, and so we feel like what's best is constantly being with each other. But 
I feel like he's probably building a more realistic relationship than we realize. It's maybe not maybe not as quite as idealistic as we think, especially this last movie being so cynical in, in comparison to the other two, you know? And um, yeah, so, but the fact that we're, I mean, and the fact that we've been talking about it in this, in this way, like they're old friends who keep coming back into our lives is really special. Um, it makes it a really special trilogy. Uh, so yeah, I love this movie. I love these movies. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great pick. I am going for my number six way off track from before midnight. I'm going with a an intoxicating cinematic nightmare starring Scarlett Johansson as an alien hunting men. Uh, and that's Under the Skin from 2014, directed by Jonathan Glazer. Probably should be even higher. I mean, people are probably going to be like, you know, like nitpicking, you know, why is Lady Bird at number seven? Uh, but, you know, this is an entire decade. These are my 10. So if a movie shows up at number six, that means that I think it's, Roughly the sixth best movie of the entire decade. So people are surprised probably to find it here before we reach the top five. Uh, I just, I loved every second of this. It's challenging. It's, it's, an expert, it's an experiment in disorientation. And it's completely uncharted viewing territory. You are not prepared for what's in this movie. Both in terms of the content, because it's very taboo, a lot. Uh, you know, this, this woman is not only... A predator. She's also the prey at some point. There's also a scene at a beach that is absolutely one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. Um, and then there's the final ten minutes where this alien being realizes that it's vulnerable, vulnerable to its own scheme in ways that I won't reveal, that are impossible to predict, and that are impossible to forget. Uh, it's absolutely perfectly cast at the center of it with Scarlett Johansson, who is basically, I mean, she literally at one point in the 2000s played the subject of a painting in a movie called Girl with a Pearl Earring that I've heard great things about, uh, one of her early roles. And here she has the stoicism of a painting subject where you have to remain incredibly still and not react to, ho- to a whole lot. And that's what she does here. It's a tricky performance. It's kind of a deceptive one. It's certainly one of the best performances of that year. And I think that you know, it's a very liberal adaptation of a novel by, by Michael Faber. I haven't read that novel, but it's apparently very different. It's very much director Jonathan Glazer's uh, adaptation in literal terms of that novel. Uh, but it pretty much strips a lot of the fat of a story away from the experience. You don't get a, a three-act structure. You don't get the character names or details. You don't get even really the sense of an empathetic perspective from our protagonist. So why is it on my list of the decade? Because this is the kind of movie that is awe-inspiring in the traditional sense of the term. Awe-inspiring has kind of become diluted as a term, but really it just literally means that we regard this movie with a mixture of fascination and fear. That's what awe is, is fascination and fear together. And this movie inspires that. So does my number five uh, in certain ways. And I think that uh, that's probably why they're at the middle of the list, because they are a little bit more forbidding than some of my top four. But um, but I just I love every second. I think it's a uh, it's a great I mean, it makes Scotland seem like an alien planet, which, of course, it is uh, to this being who has come from another planet. It's entirely in her perspective or its perspective. And uh, yeah, just 
some of the best cinematography, if not the best cinematography of the entire decade from Daniel Landon um, that creates an unknown world from one we know and a great sound design, including the score by Mika Levy, um, muffled dialogue, the sounds of nature, worldly process. I just love this thing. It's a, it's an aesthetic Marvel, but it's also something that I won't forget anytime soon. So yeah, definitely deserves a mention here at number six on my list. Joel, do you think you know me pretty well? <laughs> you're going to, you're going to pass on it. All right. Awesome. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take a pass on this one. Awesome. Uh, that, I, I've never heard of, I'm, I'm happy. To yeah. Hear I've it. never, never heard of under, you said under the skin. <laughs> like, skin. Uh, yeah, I've never heard of that one, oh, but uh, okay. it, it sounds like a nice little family film. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, my number six to kind of wrap up this uh, first part here. Um, once again, uh, this is mainly for the new listeners, but uh, if you're a returning listener, apologize, but at least you know what, at least with all the stories, Joel, that I tell and I tell over and over, you guys know which movie I'm, I'm talking about, but, um, 2014, uh, double feature day, saw Birdman and, uh, my second film that I saw that day, uh, ended on such a high note that I was kind of just inspired to edit. And, uh, you know, I was never really much of an editor when I was in school. I post-production really wasn't my thing. I was always about pre-production, even some extent production, you know, shooting the thing, but post has never been my thing. When I saw Whiplash uh, for the first time uh, and realized that editing could be in that uh, fashion, I was just floored. Uh, Tom Cross deserved the Oscar that year. He won it, so it was A-OK with me. But, um, yeah, Whiplash is just one of those things that it, it just makes you want to get back into film. It really does, and I still think it's uh, Damien Chazelle's best work. Like I said last week, uh, First Man being second, then La La Land. But it's still, unless he can prove to me that he can do a better film, he has already uh, he's already peaked. <laughs> he has already <laughs> peaked. He can't do any better. I just I don't know what that man did, but it was a short film before it, so he made it a feature length, and uh, J.K. was in uh, both of those. But um, for the feature length film, he just knew how how to precisely uh, direct this thing. Tom Cross knew how to execute it. The performances are sharp. J.K. is one of the most ferocious uh, characters I've ever seen on screen, and uh, definitely one of the most terrifying. Um, kind of my it was my introduction to Miles Teller. Uh, that was the year before with uh, Spectacular Now. I mean, you know like real introduction, but whiplash showed me a different side of him, uh, that I, I really liked the, you know, battling towards JK's character is just, it's, it's not easy to do. And I think yeah, they both are great for each other in that movie, but it just, it, it's a movie that never gets old. It, uh, flies by and definitely one of the most intense third acts of, uh, any film that I've ever seen. It's pure chaos and screen. And the the um, kind of eye spearing uh, that these two characters have, they can't say a word. Uh, J.K. mumbles things, but they're in front of an audience, which makes it uh, even more intense. They can't really say anything, but they have to just duel out their differences out there for everyone to see. And it's just it's so compelling. 
but yeah, Whiplash is is it's one of the best uh, of all time in terms of uh, uh, movies about music, band instructors. I was a band nerd uh, from eighth grade all the way up until freshman in college, so I I played you know an instrument. It's not as intense as that movie, but I did have uh, an instructor that was pretty gnarly sometimes and he didn't throw anything at us thank god but um (laughs) you know there was that that sense of perfection and i totally get that that's an that's the artist's drive is to perfect everything that they do including uh, conductors so i totally get that but this movie highlights that and yes in uh, a very exaggerated fashion but it's super effective and um it's, it's just one of my uh, more rewatchable movies uh, I've ever seen in my entire. I could pop that in at any time and just in, enjoy the heck out of it. So it it yeah, is fun. it is one of those with the the tremendously interesting question of whether it's possible that he's right. Um, right, you know, maybe maybe going about it the wrong way, <laughs> going about proving it the wrong way, uh, with a lot of verbal and phys- and some physical abuse and and kind of lording over potentially fragile people and all of that, but whether his point, which is that good job or there are the, like the two most damaging, potentially most damaging words in the English language when put in that order, uh, you know, he could be right. You don't want to coddle people. You don't want to do what he does though. Uh, and so he's a, he's a complex character. You know, it's interesting. This movie was kind of sold as kind of something like precious, but just set in a jazz world (laughs) And it's not that uh, just because he isn't a villain in the traditional sense. He's just, you know, because he, he's he's a little he's a little more complex than say Arlie Ermey in uh, in Full Metal Jacket. But he is he is a complex character and and one that's that's kind of merc- mercurial, despite the fact that he's really really loud a lot. Um, yeah, I, I I love the movie and Miles Teller's great. Uh, in it too and um, like you said the editing is tremendous it's a 19 day shoot which is just insane to me Um, yeah I I, I do love it it's not on my list but I do love it All right, folks well that does it that's our 10 through 6 we're going to take a quick break and when we come back you're going to hear our picks for the top 5 films of the decade we are in there guys we are in the home stretch Uh, a little tease Three of my choices come from the year 2011. So, yeah, you'll have fun trying to maybe figure that out in the, in the 30 or so seconds of a break. So uh, when we come back, Chase, are you ready? Top five. This we'll is be- it. Yeah. This is, what, this is what defines both of our lives, Joel. Exactly. There's no going back. There's no going <laughs> there's back. No, there's no going back. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be back in a second. And you just heard our picks for uh, from 10 to 6, the first half of our picks of the best films of the 2010s. We're going to jump right back into our lists at number 5. Chase, take it away. What is your number 5? Well, uh, with these uh, kind of segues into my picks, I usually tell like a long story. Joel gets irritated. He leaves the show. He comes back. And then I say my pick finally. But uh, this one's going to be really easy, Joel. Uh, when did we record our uh, top 10 films of 2019? 
<laughs> just about a month ago. <laughs> so just about a month ago, I two months and ago. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah, well, two months ago, and I'm excited to uh, say Parasite one more time before we can close the book nice. on that movie. Um, yes, uh, yeah. Is it the safe pick to go with that everyone's going with? Uh, I'm sure you could look at it that way, but I truly did think about it, and when I looked at my list, I was thinking about how I felt when I watched it for the first time in the theaters, how I felt when I rewatched it, um, just everything that was going on in the movie, uh, technically, thematically, what Bong was trying to go for, um, you know, w- with acting and production design, script writing, camera movement, editing. It's just everything about it just hits on point. And I know it is the, it, it is, uh, yes, it is. Well, in game as well, but Parasite is actually more recent than that. So Parasite is the more recent pick on my list. I get that, but I know we've talked about it at nauseum. But it, it's it's just so good. I don't know how you cannot put it on here. Uh, it, it's just one of those things that sticks with you, and I can't wait to rewatch it and rewatch it. And um, you know, I really do hope that if if people out there aren't really giving it a shot because it won best picture and it's from South Korea. That's an asinine thing to think about, but I'm telling you just forget about the subtitles, forget about all that. Please just watch it as a movie and really get invested into the story, into the characters. And it's a movie that you don't know what's going to happen next. It kind of throws you off guard. You know, when uh, I'm sure when Joel watched it the first time, he had the same reaction when I watched it for the first time. I didn't read anything about it. I went in blind. I kind of knew basically what the movie was about, but I didn't know like where it was going to go. And I, it, it re- I rarely get surprised by movies anymore. Uh, it's not because I am just not a fun person. Well, that's partly it, but uh, <laughs> it's also because – Joel and I see, you know, I, I see, you know, a little over a hundred. Joel sees like uh, twelve hundred, but um, <laughs> you know, Joel, Joel and I see so many films throughout the year that some of the films kind of run together. You know, some of them just don't really stick out, and they kind of just go by the wayside or just become a part of everything else. But when you get out of that fray and you step above it, and you're able to surprise us, that in itself is really great, and so. You know, that that's just kind of the cherry on top of that cake. I, I know we've just recently talked about it, so really no reason to dive deep into it. If you want to know uh, Joel and I's deep dive thoughts into it, we got a whole podcast episode dedicated to it. Uh, I know our listener, uh, Brad, uh, Brad said, uh, I, Joel, I don't know if you know this, but Brad did actually, uh, he had to stop the Parasite episode. Mm, yeah, and then yeah, he, he, he picked that. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he picked it back up, you know, when he watched it, which was like a couple months later. So, uh, yeah, watch or listen to that episode if you wanted the uh, extensive thoughts um, when Joel and I were fresh off the movie. But but as of right now, I'm comfortable with saying that it is my number five. I, I had to rate it low just because it is the new kid on the block. I knew it was going to be a top five. But uh, I think for right now, I'm comfortable putting it right smack dab in the middle. And I mentioned it as an honorable mention uh, earlier. And, I, and, and this is one of those cases where I can totally understand the recency bias. I mean, it's, it's just a great movie. It's a great movie, and it's a great experience. Of course, I watched it again right after it won Best Picture. 
And uh, it, you're right. Everything about this movie works. It shouldn't work. I, it, the whole thing is an act of hubris on the part of Bong Joon-ho to think that it could work. And then it does. And it completely surprises and blindsides you. And it's, yeah, I mean, there's a point at which it should all fall apart. And the fact that not only does it not fall apart, but it gets better and better and deeper and and uh, more more devastating and more surprising and, and funnier and, and all of that is just, it's a it's a testament to the to the filmmakers and yeah I, I i love the heck out of this movie um you know i mentioned that it's an act of hubris my number five is also an act of hubris uh and that's an act of hubris on the part of director terrence malick with 2011's the tree of life um basically the setup here is that uh malick has taken his own childhood put it through the prism of a fictional family living in texan suburbs of the 1950s um, there's the father played by Brad Pitt. There's the mother played by Jessica Chastain in her breakout year. And it was the best performance of her breakout year. Um, and then there's two sons played by Ty Sheridan, who also broke out, has done a lot of stuff since then. And, uh, Hunter McCracken, who unfortunately has not, although it's one of the best, uh, I guess, youth performances of the entire decade. Uh, he has not done anything before or after this. And it's really unfortunate. Um, uh, McCracken is kind of the central focus as a young man played by Sean Penn in an older life, in in a modern-day timeline. Um, And it's just about him kind of uh, navigating family life with a dad who's fairly strict, a mother who is very gentle, and then also adult life when a tragedy has occurred. Uh, in the family and not one that you might anticipate. Um, you know, it's foolish to try to guess whether this is autobiographical, but there's too many instances of imagery that is really strange. And it's something like our friend Mark Dusick, this is his top film of the entire decade, um, pointed out, you know, something like, and, and uh, Chase didn't see this, but it's um, a clown in the attic, a uh, a rocking chair in that same attic, just in a in a different place in the attic. It, it, these are remembrances that Malik that Malik is putting forth in his imagery, but he's also pairing that story with the with the beginning and end of the universe. We see dinosaurs. We see uh, a giant sun enveloping the Earth by way of visual effects uh, achieved by Douglas Trumbull of 2001, A Space Odyssey, all of it practical, um, that just, again, I, you know, I talked about with Under the Skin, this sense, of, this sense of awe in the traditional sense of the term, fascination and fear. That's what we look at all of that humbling imagery and, uh, and also consider it, obviously, a religious experience. It's a, it's a deeply religious philosophical movie, and that was uh, that was Malick's kind of tune this decade, um, and it stretched into movies like To the Wonder, which is his most explicitly religious film, um, Night of Cups, which is kind of religious through the through the prism of materialism, uh, Song to Song, maybe the same way, although it didn't work as well. Hidden Life, certainly religious uh, in the context of historical tragedy, but. This was the film that, for me, worked the best to uh, achieve 
what Malik was trying to do uh, with his with his uh, chosen themes, and it's just it's a humbling. Uh, it's not a casual viewing experience. You can't just pop this in to to enjoy some popcorn. And is it an ambitious production that could be categorized as a mess? Maybe, but I think that it's an, it's a singular experience, and it's certainly worthy of putting this high on a list. I I, I love this film, and uh, it's one that I treasure. It's not one that I've seen very often. I think I've only seen it once or twice since it came out, but it's one that I can go back to if I need if I need a humbling experience. So <laughs> that's all I'll say. Uh, yeah, that's my number five. Yeah, uh, so little local cool story. Joel, uh, let me borrow it. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> end of end, end, end of story. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I will. I will watch it because uh, if Joel gives me something to watch, I will watch it. But it just it takes me a while. To be mm. fair, though, I did give him some movies, and he hadn't touched yes, it for like a year. Yeah. So and, and then I had to give them back because I never because I never watched it. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> one of those was Blue Valentine, and I never found myself in a in a mental state to watch that. Uh, right and it, yeah, it's really it's, tough like i i gave joel shame to watch and yeah I'm, it took me a while I'm sure to get to that too. yeah it took yeah. a while to get into that so i think that was uh, the only no was that uh yeah i think that was the only one i watched of because i think that you gave me that one with uh, blue valentine and inland empire the uh, david lynch yes. movie. never watched the other two but i did watch shame <laughs> Uh, of course, Inland Empire was a thing where, again, it's not casual. It's also three hours. And <laughs> right. I, you know, I can't just I just can't fit it into part of a day. I have to kind of clear out a day almost to watch the movie and then use the rest of the day to uh, walk around in a daze. And um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those. I kind of honestly gave it to you. I gave it to Chase about two months ago. Uh, I think wasn't it? Yeah, because it was when I came out to record. So. Um, and I kind of gave it to him wondering, I was like, you know, I wonder if he's even going to get to this <laughs> because it's one of those that you just have to prepare yourself for. You have to prepare yourself mentally for it. And it's, uh, and it's not easy. So, right. But it's and, my and, uh, <laughs> just so, uh, Joel and I can fantasize for just a brief second and then we can get back to our terrible lives. Uh, you know, if Joel and I ever like make it super big and this is our lives and we get to just review movies all the time. We can do reviews, podcasts, whatever. Uh, I'm definitely gonna like create a uh, really slick looking like movie theater room, mm. and I will uh, watch whatever Joel wants at any point during the day. <laughs> I will drop whatever because that is our job at that point, mm. and I will make it as luxurious as possible. Yeah, but uh, o- only one can dream, Joel. But uh, right, yes, uh, the Tree of Life. Uh, I will get to it when I turn 75. It'll be a great <laughs> 75th uh, birthday present. You know, uh, it so actually it's, it's weird. It actually might work better then. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. This I'll, is, uh... is going to be one of those things where when I turn, I mean, I'm going to make a point to return to this movie every five or so years. You know, I think it's. I mean, I don't think it's been five years since I saw it. I just rewatched it a couple years ago to kind of re up, but um, but th- it's one of those movies where I feel like I could just come back to it every five or so years, and I can't wait to see what happens when I am sixty or something, and I and I come back to it and see what happens. You know, just obviously there will be a few times I'll have seen it a few times before then, but. Still, it'll be interesting to see how I react to this movie in in an older age when I'm when I'm closer to Malik's age. Um, right. It, well, and that goes for any movie on any of our lists. It's mm-hmm, like it's going to yeah. be amazing to see, like, as we get older, especially if like we have future kids and like 
how are they going to react to it? And they're going to be like, Dad, you're such an idiot. Why did you like this? <laughs> and we're going to be like, hey, and, go to your room. And you're in any trouble. Of my, in any of my top five, honestly, I, probably top nine, honestly, are movies where, I, where I'm picturing that, where I'm picturing myself right. coming, coming back to the, to the movie at a different point in my life. Um, which of course is, you know, you've talked about before midnight. That's the whole point of following that relationship is because we come back to it, um, every, every so often and coming back to these movies, especially these top five will be an incredibly special experience. And, um, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how I process a lot of these movies at an older age. So love it. I can't wait until we look back on uh, this episode uh, when we're like super old in our <laughs> deathbed and we're like, wow, we were such morons and we just die in the bed. Uh, so that's you're, how we'll... you're 80. You come across this list and Avengers Endgame's on it and you're like, wait, oh, no. what? I, I'll, I'll, I'll probably have a heart attack at that time. And that's probably how I die. So I'm actually killing myself right now in the future. So yep. uh, like 60 years from now. Um, but yeah, uh, my number four. Um, I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it here just briefly. Uh, but it, it, it is not my favorite film of the filmmaker. If you guys want to know a little insight into that, my favorite film uh, from the filmmaker. Uh, sometimes I, I am in the mood for this. Sometimes I'm in the mood for that. But uh, Boogie Nights and Punch Drunk Love are by far, I think, my favorite films uh, that that guy has done. There will be blood. It's up there too. Uh, but uh, this is also up there, and this is the best one of this decade. Yes, uh, even over Phantom Thread, and yes, even over Inherent Vice. I know a lot of people love both of those, and Joel and I both love those too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think the master is where I think it will be talked about for years in terms of an examination of acting and just purely gorgeous cinematography and score uh it it is a film that i I think will be examined especially in phoenix's filmography where uh this is a guy who has had a very diverse career now a lot of people know about it because of joker and how popular is and I, i i kid you not and this is why part of me likes the joker win and the fact that he took it home is because people will explore his other films this actually happened to me when I was in the grocery store getting my groceries, it was early in the morning. So it's like me and um, uh, senior citizens in the, in the store. That's the way it always is. And that's, that's when I like to shop. So I get there, I get in line and usually at grocery stores, they'll have uh, movies uh, for sale, uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, um, it, different chains are different, but uh, for the most part, they have some type of new release section there. This lady had to have been, oh, God, like 72, 73. I mean, she she was not anywhere close to where Joel and I are at in life. She straight up asked the, the cashier, who was a teenager, when is the Joker movie coming in? I need to see it. I'm like, oh, my God, this movie appeals to everybody. This is crazy. But that's a good thing, though, because I'm hoping they venture out and see inherent vice or her or uh the master just and they're just like oh my god like phoenix is he's got such a great career and you know i don't blame these people they don't watch a lot of movies throughout the year but that's what's great about successful films like that is you can propel it to make them watch older stuff and so 
the master to me, I still think is his best performance. Uh, even arguably maybe the best performance that Amy Adams and Philip Seymour Hoffman have given. Uh, I know uh, Philip has given a lot of great performances, uh, all uh, uh, not all, but uh, most of his <laughs> best roles have been under, uh, you know, PTA's direction, but it, it's just a really powerful film in terms of uh, watching these people lose themselves, uh, watch how brainwashing works and um, control of the human mind and how people take advantage of other people, especially when they're in their, the darkest parts of their days, especially with uh, Freddie Quill, you know, uh, Phoenix's character. He's so lost uh, after he has gotten back, you know, from, from service and, you know, he's got, he's got a drinking problem and it's just, he doesn't, he doesn't belong anywhere. And then you just have this, uh, person running this cult wondering um what's going on with freddie and he kind of lures him in and it's just really devastating to watch it's a great character study as well um it, it, there's just a lot going on and i know it's not it's not everyone's cup of tea uh it's like when joel was talking about like under the skin or tree of life and like these are challenging watches it's not anything you go oh hi uh you know, let, let's let's watch uh, the master for date night. Like it's not one of those films. I mean, who knows? But maybe both of you are into it, and that's what you would do. Uh, you know, I, I love my future wife quite a bit, and she's willing to watch whatever. But I'm also not going to just be like, "You want to watch the master tonight?" <laughs> she's she's going to pass on it, and that's right. just the way it is. And she's not anything against like Phoenix or any. She she just seen some of the weirdest things with me ever since we've dated, but uh, it, it is a challenging watch, but I, I, that's what Joel and I like doing these lists for is we implore you to seek these movies out. We, we want you to be immersed in different types of cinema that maybe you've never even heard of before, or maybe you've heard about and Joel and I keep talking about it. And so you're like, all right, fine. I give up. I'll, I'll start watching it. And we just hope that you, you just, expand your filmography a little bit and we that's what we like doing i think the master is one of those tests in terms of um just a filmmaker's dream to watch you know uh, you know film lovers and you know even casual viewers i would love for you to watch it and let me know how you you like it i know uh at first when this movie released a lot of people didn't really care for it they really didn't and even my friend who is a hardcore you know, PTA fan actually introduced me to this director. Even he was like, you know, kind of so, so on it for at the beginning stages, but he has slowly started, started to love it. But yeah, the master is just, it's just one of those movies that I, I love popping in, in terms of soaking up uh, beautiful cinematography or hearing Greenwood score um, or just watching some great acting. And so I, I think the master deserves a spot um, for this decade. And I, w I would easily put, um, I'd easily put Punch Drunk Love in the decade before that. And then I would put Boogie Nights before that. So that, that's kind of how I, I see PTA uh, in terms of my, my personal favorites. It's a great choice. Uh, it's another one you you heard me mention it as a uh, as a as an honorable mention, and it's probably number like twelve or something for me. So that's pretty high. And um, yeah, I uh, 
I love it. I love it. And it was actually you that made me love it because I didn't respond to this movie so much the first time when I, when I saw it in theaters and then I borrowed it from you. I think that it was just the tincture of time almost kind of made me appreciate it more. And uh, when I came back, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. So, well, it, it just, just to kind of jump off that point briefly, uh, Joel and I, we're, we're not, we're not people that will just never admit to changing an opinion as we grow up and like get wiser and stuff. Like if you talk to my younger self in 2012 and 13, I probably hated certain movies that I might look back on now and be like, wow, what a moron. Mm. And it's okay to hate a movie and then, or be whatever with it. And then watch it when you get, you'll have a different perspective. I will guarantee you. And so, uh yeah that's that's really important to keep that in mind you know joel might have hated it the first time and yet he still wanted to rewatch it just to see what would happen and now look he's got a complete 180 (laughs) on it so you just never know yeah it's uh it's a tremendous piece of work all right well my number three is i'm sorry no my number four (laughs) okay my number four is a movie that i'm pretty sure when i say it either chase is going to pass or we're just going to move on to his number three depending on where he has it um because i'm pretty sure that we're about to come up on it on his list and it was a movie that we saw together we saw it at a screening we saw it at a screening with one of the actors present and afterward we both pretty much looked at each other and said that was perfect Chase now knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> My number four is Moonlight from director Barry Jenkins, 2016's best film. Uh, this one is the film that follows a young, a young African-American boy who is uh, from, well, from boyhood to manhood, uh, played variously by Alex R. Hibbert, uh, Trevante Rhodes, and um, Ashton Sanders. And as he kind of navigates life in Miami um, on the edge of economic despair, really, with his mother played by Naomi Harris um, and a father figure in Juan um, played by Mahershala Ali, who kind of disappears under, under uh, certain circumstances before the end of the movie. Um, he's also kind of exploring his sexuality uh, and the behind-the-scenes stories of this are what fascinate me just as much as the movie does. The fact that the three actors playing this young boy, Chiron is his name, um, did, did not speak to each other until the film's red carpet premiere, so they never collaborated on the performances. Uh, Trevante Rhodes and Andre Holland, who plays the older of an old flame of Chiron's, did not each other literally until a phone call that we see captured in a single take uh, between their characters. They did not speak to each other before that point. So literally what we see is the first time those two people, not just the two characters in a long time, but the two actors for the first time ever are talking to each other. Naomi Harris plays the mother, managed her performance, which was uh, you know Academy Award nominated, in a single long weekend from midday of a Friday until about noon of the immediate Monday that followed that. It just is this incredibly compressed shooting experience for a movie that has, that is so special, that is just so honest and devastating and moves 
at a pace that is um, leisurely and magnetic. You are absolutely hooked to the screen every second of this movie. It won Best Picture and one of the most infamous uh, flubs <laughs> ever uh, at the Oscars, uh, perhaps the most infamous. And everything around this movie just has iconographic written all over it, all over it. And then you get to the movie itself, which is just, like I said, it's just such an honest and devastating and true movie. Um, you know, I often wonder what would have made or what would have been at the top of Roger Ebert's lists after his death, uh, which is something that also happened this decade, certainly deserves to be talk about, talked about in terms of this decade of movies. And, you know, he died in 2013 and was unable, of course, after 20, 2012 to offer up a list for any of the, uh, the intervening years. And I honestly wonder if this is the one that would have topped it for him that year, because I feel like it, it really tapped into why movies are what he called empathy machines. Um, because this is one of the most empathetic experiences you can have with a movie. Uh, to be opened up to a world that is underrepresented, to come to understand the characters within it when maybe you haven't experienced any of the things that they have. You know, I haven't experienced being black. I haven't ex experienced being a young gay man. I haven't experienced being in genuine or, or really close to poverty. Um, <clears throat> I haven't experienced any of, that, any of that. But it is a real it's a it's a it's a special experience and yeah i love it um so are you gonna are you gonna pass on this or is this your number three so i don't know what kind of voodoo you working with over there because uh it's my number three nice uh, okay. right. yeah see you, as soon as you said see, that i was like it's so funny i was because... like you son of a gun like you nailed it <laughs> yeah i mean i figured because we were getting closer and closer i was like it's if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be in his top three, and it might very well just be his three. So, anyway. Yeah, you, you you nailed that perfectly. Uh, so, if you guys want to know a little fun history about Joel and myself, uh, some of my favorite uh, movie-going experiences I've had with him, uh, number six, I, I'd say uh, just recently last year when we saw Marriage Story together, mm. uh, number, number five, I would go the whole – a uh, whole diff year when mm. we saw eighth grade generation wealth and three identical strangers. <laughs> oh, yeah, Cause that was a fantastic year. Uh, four, I would go with the time I, I actually heard Joel cackle and I don't like using that word lightly, but he cackled uh, when uh, Vigo Morton said, uh, said ass the way he did in green book. <laughs> I had never heard Joel laugh so hard in my existence of knowing that man. And it, to be fair, I laughed very hard during that, that line too, but it was the way he delivered it and said that I just, I, I it was tears from both of us. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the third one that was my favorite. I didn't really care what Joel thought of it. I turned to him and I said, I love this movie and I love the first one as well. And uh, I still am in the minority because I haven't seen anyone on the face of the planet that likes alien covenant and Prometheus. So when we saw Alien Covenant, Taylor, I turned and I was like, I love it. I don't really care what anyone says. It's great. Uh, the second time is when we first met, when we saw the mm. uh, uh, end of the tour. Uh, that was the first film we saw together. And then the first and the best thing that we've ever seen together, period. 
uh, and Joel is absolutely correct. When we got done watching it, we both turned to each other and we said, that is, uh, that is perfect, and that is the best movie of the year. And we claimed that in October mm-hmm. of that year, and nothing was able to beat it. So, uh, yeah, just a little fun little history with us. But, yeah, nothing, Moonlight, nothing even came close. <laughs> it really didn't. I was yeah. like, that, like, that is the winner right there. Um, and in, in my eyes, it's one of the best – uh, romance stories, uh, period. Just like with mm-hmm. you know the before trilogy, if anyone ever asked me for a romance recommendation, I will give them that uh, movie as a as a choice. And to kind of piggyback off of what Joel said, I I know people might not think it's important, but I really do think it adds uh, extra power to the perspective of us because if. You know, if Joel and I are not black, you know, we are not gay. We are not these young men growing up. We we are not uh, we have not grown up in a poor condition. But what's great about it is that we can empathize with these these characters. We we can understand where they're coming from. It is a human story. Uh, that first and foremost, it is a love story about two people just loving each other and it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your orientation. That is always beautiful. And if you can portray that and people can understand that, then it doesn't matter the background. It, 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 sure, it surely is different because it, it, it's never been done before in this capacity. But if you can watch that and understand that it's just simply a beautiful love story, then you you can you can empathize with this and you can get along with it and uh yeah i just i i do i think it's important i know people might think it's weird that we're we're mentioning that but it it is very important that we we kind of establish that we are the complete opposite of what this person is going through but joel and i have been there we've been there in terms of you know first loves we've been there when we have crushes on people and how do we understand that? How do we process that? And that's what uh, that that that's what Sharon's going through is just the the process of how to how to love and being uh, with the uh, you know his orientation and the color of his skin. It is harder because people uh, look at him differently and they have that prejudice and it's terrible. But unfortunately, people do that, and so that is also taken into account when watching the movie because Barry Jenkins is a black gentleman himself. He understands that that that's an important part of the story that he wants to convey in this uh, 21st century where some people are still bigoted like that. It's it's terrible, but um, it's it's crafted wonderfully. The performances are off the chart, and that has to go with all three of them Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, kid, teenage, and uh, adult. And the – Joel, I can't remember. Who was the – who was the actor that came by that day? Uh, Trevante Rhodes. Because he was... He was the yeah. adult version, right? Yeah, he was the oldest. Okay, he's, yeah. He's a Dallas, he's a Dallas native, so... I, I, I couldn't remember if it was him or uh, uh, the... the who the who was... middle one? No, oh, no, the, no, no. The, the love interest? Yes, Andre yes, Holland. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Andre... That's that's who it was. I was like, he, I was like Castle Rock, Castle Rock, Andre Holland. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I couldn't remember if it was uh, either one of those, but it was just really cool to hear them speak. 
about taking on this role and how what it's going to do in terms of representation and just the impact into this genre uh, as a whole. And it, it does. It ruffles the feathers. If you look at uh, films about young gay black men living in poor neighborhoods in Florida, I'm pretty sure this is the only one that's out there. <laughs> and it, it's it's amazing that uh, this was made. I'm glad the A24 picked it up. It was their first best picture win. Uh, Barry Jenkins won a lot that night too. And, you know, I immediately followed him on Twitter after watching this movie. Um, it, it, you know, Mahershal Ali, that's where I was introduced to him. Mm. Of course he won his Oscar for, for this one as well. You know, two time in a, in a row actually. But uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful film guys uh, about growing up, coming of age, uh, finding your place in the world even when uh, the world gives up on you, uh, finding your love and how to deal with that. And, you know, one of the scenes that actually uh, permeates into my brain and really haunts me, uh, it, the diner scene is really well handled. And mm-hmm. it, it, it brings a tear to my, my eye each time. But Joel, do you want to know what makes me cry the most? And I'm tearing up just thinking about it is when he's sitting with uh, Naomi Harris when she is older. And she's mm-hmm. at the uh, uh, is it a psych ward or is it a uh, either that or a group home? I can't a group home, remember. yeah, uh, or a halfway house or something. I can't quite remember. So when when uh, when he goes to visit her, that it it breaks me, dude. Mm-hmm. And I I seriously thought that she was gonna win supporting actress uh, that year. She was nominated, mm-hmm. but uh, I really wish she would have won because she was just that powerful. But yeah, man, it I, I know uh, people talk a lot about moonlight and i'm sure you know people out there think it's it's overhyped you know there's no way a movie could be that good I, there's a reason why i put it as my number three it, it is i seriously think these top three if anything uh these three define the decade and which is funny because all three of them are like three years apart um and, and i i firmly believe that it when people like film historians people in the future look back on um this decade 2016 will pop up uh not only because of the oscar debacle which was funny but um it, because of this film and how great it is and i can't recommend it enough and uh and also just a little side plug uh since joel and i do have a platform uh if you have not seen barry jenkins uh follow-up film if beale street could talk that mm. is also wonderful Fantastic check it out movie, yeah Exactly, and Regina King winning her Oscar as well, so he's really great at supporting work. Made uh, made, you know. made my top 10 of 2018, retroactively made Chase's, because uh, he hadn't seen it yet, but I know right. that you, you said it would have been pretty high. It, it uh, would have been your... high, and uh, like the score was great, and I listened mm-hmm. to it on the, uh, on the plane, mm-hmm. and through like crappy earbuds, and I still uh, felt the emotion from just that whole movie, so that that's a little tangent, but... Uh, yeah, Barry, if you're listening to us, he's not ever going to listen to it because we're, we're just not there yet, Joel. But if we if we ever get there and he gets a hold of this, Barry, keep doing your thing, and uh, I, I can't wait for your next project. But thank you for introducing me to Moonlight and introducing me to one of the best of the decade. So, Joel, you were correct. Moonlight is my number three. Nice, nice. All right. I was honestly fully prepared to be wrong and, and it be your like number two or one or something, but yeah, uh, it's great to hear that. My number three is a movie that I've been, you know, I talked about last week as being as containing for me, 
the entire te- the entire decade's best performance, uh, and that was Anna Paquin, who starred in the 2011 film Margaret from director Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, this one is stars Paquin as a young woman named Lisa, who is kind of a troubling young woman, who has the unintentional uh, who has an unintentional role in the death of a random passerby, played in an absolutely unforgettable cameo by Allison Janney. Um, I did not, I was not aware of Janney very much when I saw this film, uh, because I had not seen the West Wing yet. Uh, that was how I was kind of thrown in, uh, to being, um, uh, introduced to her. And it would be about a year and a half or so before I started that show. And of course, then she broke out with a bunch of roles, uh, later on in the decade, uh, finally winning the Oscar for Itania. She's she's here, and basically, uh, Lisa distracts the driver of a bus, played by Mark Ruffalo, from stopping at a red light, and causes a very gruesome scene. It's hard to watch because there is a, a severed limb, and they don't they don't uh, they don't turn away from it, and it culminates with Lisa telling a falsehood to the investigating officers uh, on the scene. And she decides to tell them that the that the light was green, um, and that um, the uh, the woman was walking against a red light. So, anyway, small detail, but it absolutely spirals everything out of control. She is over. She is racked with guilt. She visits the dead woman's only family that she can find, played by Jeannie Berlin, uh, who's completely electrifying. She is also kind of struggling with instigating a possible affair with her professor, played by Matt Damon, living with an over, overprotective mother, played by J. Smith Cameron, and also losing a, uh, her virginity to a classmate, played by Kieran Culkin. Uh, so it's all of these different things in a movie that's the ultimate test of empathy. Uh, yet again, coming back with empathy, all four of my top four are about that. Um, you know, the question is whether or not you can handle this, woman, this young woman this character who tends to rub along pleasantly enough until something cracks and suddenly the, um, uh, you know, maybe assumptions are made or maybe just there's not a graceful way of exiting a conversation. She's a difficult character. Um, and it's very much a movie about post nine 11 paranoia. Uh, and there's a very long conversation of, uh, from the point of view of a lot of white people, about the place of Arab Americans in America in a post-9-11 society that is a very controversial sequence. Um, I think that it all makes the movie much better. It's not an easy watch, and it's a deliberate trudge, but it's really just a tremendous... It's a sledgehammer to the stomach, is how I'd put it. Um, just because of the things that we learn and the things that the characters learn you know, along with us, and yeah, I just, I, I love this movie, and I think that, uh, that it's a tremendous accomplishment. So, number three, Margaret, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I remember, uh, like we were discussing last week, you, you, you brought it up, and I forgot which cut I watched, but, uh, I enjoyed it, uh, quite a bit, and I think I was even more curious about it, because, um, of my love for Manchester by the sea. Mm. And of course you, you bringing that up and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. 
Um, but yeah, I forgot which cut I watched, but I remember specifically where I was living at the time because I watched it in my living room around like midnight ish. And it, it didn't get done until like three 30. Cause I watch, I think I did watch the, the three hour uh, long cut. So uh, yeah, that was interesting. But so for my number two, um, obviously you guys know which two they are because I passed on both of them. Now the question is what is going to reign Supreme? And I'll get to my reasoning to my number one as to why I picked it over this one. But for my number two, I'm going to go with the social network. Um, The social network to me was the first, one of the first films of the decade that made me kind of rethink how I watched movies. And it was kind of weird to say, but I was 20 years old at the time. I worked at the theater still, and I watched it for free. Uh, I think I watched it in the middle of the the day. It was me and three other people in there. And I was just glued to the screen from start to finish. And uh, Fincher was no, no one new for me. And to be quite frank with you, you know, just kind of going through his filmography uh, in preparation for this list, just to kind of be like, okay, that one, that one, that one. I've actually seen every single movie of his in real time. Um, uh, you know, with Alien 3 coming out in the early 90s, I didn't watch it right when it came out, but I watched it like a few years later when uh, my friends and I would be totally naughty behind our parents' backs and watch R-rated movies. Alien 3 was one of those I watched. And then, of course, I watched uh, Seven, Fight Club. I've actually seen David Fincher uh, like grow up as a filmmaker. Like It's just It's just weird. Because uh, I've seen uh, all of them in roughly real time versus like, you know, a Scorsese where obviously Joel and I were not alive in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, but we can still kind of catch up that way. But Fincher's been one of those directors that I've actually kind of grown up with. And I've seen the the skill in that man ever since I saw uh, Seven and, and you know panic room fight club and all that stuff and when you go back and you rewatch the stuff it's just kind of interesting uh the perspective that you have on it but the social network was one of the first ones i remember ever watching in a theater where i was like wow this is like top tier filmmaking and i really want to explore this uh, a little bit more and I- i'm so glad that i watched it when it came out came out late 2010 so uh 10 months into the new decades not a bad way to uh stamp your place into the zeitgeist uh of fil- filmography but yeah I, I i seriously think that uh all the wins that it got that night at the oscars was justified it should have won best picture obviously but i'll take what i can get uh, i love the score from ross uh uh yeah uh, atticus ross and um uh, Reznor, uh, cinematography, like Joel said, it, it's it's really interesting how they shoot this. It's very um, it's very moody. It's very orangey. Like it's just it's so weird. Uh, a movie about Facebook that's shot so elo- eloquently um, is one of the first introductions I ever had of Jesse Eisenberg in this type of role. Yeah, he had Zombieland the year before, but this is more uh, like what 
Eisenberg pretty much signed up for this industry to do, which was to show us his chops. This is where uh, I was introduced to Andrew Garfield uh, for the first time. Of course, uh, Justin Timberlake. I've always enjoyed him in movies, but this was also a great movie to kind of showcase people that be like, really, Justin Timberlake? Uh, And he actually was pretty awesome. Um, And then, of course, introduction to Army Hammer. There's a lot of great introductions to this movie. I think even Rooney Mara, too. Damn. Uh, So, uh, but yeah, Aaron Sorkin writing this thing and how precise that script is. And like Joel said, every single word is uttered out of these people's mouths. That's how Sorkin works. Um, Sorkin isn't uh, batting perfect all the time. Uh, Joel and I witnessed that with Molly's game. But, (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, he is very good at uh, creating these play-like uh, structures where it just it feels like it's going at a 1,000 miles per hour, but you can understand everything that's going on, and it's just compelling dialogue. Uh, and, he, and he gave that to us even more with Steve Jobs, which is literally you know, oh my three, God, yes. three acts, and it's all dialogue-driven. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah. By the way, watch Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah. Definitely – underrated that no one ever talks about that that movie just died by the wayside another another one i saw about a month early uh maybe even more than that yeah it's crazy oh i hate you uh (laughs) i have a bad experience with that movie but uh Uh, yeah but uh only because i had to like leave in the middle of it uh, go to the bathroom but um yes uh with the social network i just remember watching that thing and just being in awe and i think the one scene or there was two scenes that made me uh, really wanted to examine the movie further was the club scene mm-hmm. where he is talking to Justin Timberlake and how Fincher utilizes real life uh, sound in terms of not making it drowned out so we can hear the characters. It's actually like overpowering the characters uh, in a real life setting. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really smart kind of move and, and, I, and I, it was and it was so funny because there was actually nothing playing on set they all just had to right. scream the entire time <laughs> right <laughs> which is hilarious added, they just added everything in, in post uh which right is and, crazy but uh that that was one of the scenes that i saw that uh made me realize how how smart you know this movie is and mm. you know i i know i'm kind of weird when i operate like that but i i noticed certain things like that to where a director could have easily taken the the you know, easy route, but um, no, he made it as realistic as possible. And then, of course, the the ending scene that everyone loves to bring up with uh, Andrew Garfield yelling at uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, one last time before he storms off, and it's the best. Like it's probably it's probably one of the best scenes I've ever seen in Garfield's career so far. Um, it, it still it still sticks with me. It's really effective. Uh, the music is haunting. And really kind of adds this level of terror that's going on. Once again, this is a movie about Facebook. And I'm talking about a scene as if it's from a horror film. It's, But that's what I love about this movie is that Sorkin and Fincher know what the content is. But they elevate it to such a way to where you forget about it, that it's Facebook. You just think of it as this random social network site that they created. And this feels like a fictional film. It doesn't even feel like it's based on real people. But it is, and it's a piece of art. It mm. really is, and it uh, it won editing uh, that year. Music, uh, like I said, um, definitely warranted in the editing as well. As 
you can tell from the the pattern here I like, oh, I like yeah. some really well edited films especially with like parasite and whiplash but um social network i i think is i i don't personally find anything wrong with it i i am comfortable with using the p word i think it is per- a perfect film and it's one of those films in uh fincher's uh filmography that uh i'm cool with if he never toys with and has like this weird uh extended cut that he had uh when he first did it like no like this is this is what films uh, that uh, that th- this is what they're like when they like transport you to another place. You lose yourself, you escape reality, and you're just in this world. And that that's what one that's what this movie does for sure. So, guys, it, whew, that was a lot to talk about, but uh, that is my number two. And now you already know what my number one is. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you why it is my number one. But uh, Joel. You knew this was coming. This is no <laughs> surprise. Uh, are, are you just shocked? I'm not at all. Uh, but I am. I am delighted. It's a great movie. It's a great movie, and uh, yeah, I mean, making me feel bad that it's quote unquote only my number eight. Uh, but what can I say? Uh, it's my number eight of the whole decade. So my number two uh, is a movie that. Um, we're getting into some that, like, I think three of my top five you didn't see, but Shoplifters is my number two from 2018, directed by Hirokazu Kureda. Uh, one of the movies that absolutely just devastated me the most. Um, this one is about a poor family living on the outskirts of Tokyo and at the edge of poverty um, that take us uh, take a young girl in when they realize that they could possibly give her a better life, uh, despite the fact that they are technically a family of criminals, uh, some of them unwitting, but a couple of them witting. And you have the father, Osamu, played by Lily Frankie, the mother, Nobuyo, played by Sakura Ando, who I talked about last week among my uh, picks for the best performances of the decade. Son Jota, played by Gio Kairi, the aunt Aki, played by Mayu Matsuoka, and the grandmother Hatsue, played by the dearly departed Kieran Kiki, who uh, passed away shortly before the release of the movie in the U.S. Um, They're basically kind of stuck at home because Osamu's injury from work has handicapped him. And then Hatsue dies rather suddenly, and so their major source of income stops altogether because she's been... Uh, mooching off of um, some family. And this is kind of compound, compounded by uh, the kidnapping <laughs> that Osamu and Shota commit when they bring this young girl to their home. But they believe, like I said, that they are genuinely able to give her a better life. It doesn't always work. The, shop, the shoplifting sprees that Osamu and Shota go on that Yuri, uh, the girl played by Miyu uh, Sasaki, goes on or put in jeopardy. Um, and meanwhile, in the background of the story, there's an investigation launched into her whereabouts when the uh, parents are, um, when the parents report her missing and then are suspects in her disappearance. Uh, that isn't at the forefront of the story, though. That's all in the background. And the forefront is a just a pretty much a road to discovering the truth about this family unit, um, how they came to be together, um, and whether or not they're technically blood-related, all of them. And it's also about that very thing. What is family, and is it technically blood relation, or is it something 
that happens because of nurture. It's the nature, nature versus nurture thing uh, uh, together again. If your real family has dissolved, then can a new family be put in its place and can that be considered a family? And it's a, it's a, it's a complex idea. This movie does not shy away from that. Um, I haven't seen much from Coreta. It's by far the best film I have seen. I've also seen I Wish from 2012, which I wasn't a huge fan of. Far too long. Uh, but I did like After the Storm from 2017 quite a bit. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't at the top of any sort of pack like this is. This is the most humanistic and most empathetic film from him that I've seen. Um, he's got a new movie coming out, The Truth, with uh, Ethan Hawke, Catherine Deneuve, and Julia Binoche. Can't wait to see what that has up its sleeve. But for now, this is absolutely one of the best films of the decade. Near the top, uh, you know, it's just a it's just, it's a testament to how good my number one is that this is not number one. Um, but I will say, I guess something that I should have said at the top of the show that with this list, before I get to you know our number ones, in terms of my list, I feel like any of my ten through six that we talked about in the first half of this show really could have been jumbled up in any order. I would have been I would have been fine with 10 through 6 being in any order, right? Uh, you know, Under the Skin could have been number 10. Drive could have been number 7. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really mean anything either. I mean, the placement. But <clears throat> with my 2 through 5, I'm the same way. I feel like I could have put those in any order and it would have made sense. I do have a clear number 1, the film that really kind of towered over everything else. And it's just a testament to how good that movie is that this one is my number two um, because it's truly a masterpiece. And yeah, um, I think that's the first time I've used that word to describe a movie, but, uh, but it's true in this case. I love it. And uh, yeah, number two, I know that you didn't see this one because you're an evil, just satanic person, but, uh, but it's fantastic. So anyway, that's my number two, Shoplifters. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to uh, finally watch it in my Hulu queue before it uh, kicks itself off the the service. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's usually what happens, guys. Uh, I'll put it in the queue and like, just I'll I'll, I'll check in a couple months later. I'm like, oh, they got rid of it. Uh, but that that's my fault. So, um, no, it's still on Hulu right now, and it's still in my queue. So maybe one of these days. Um, yes. So obviously. You guys know my number one, but uh, I, I, I kind of want to go off with what Joel said uh, just for my top three. I'd put the M word on mm. uh, Moonlight, The Social Network, and Under the Skin. Uh, I, I, I truly believe that Under the Skin is the best thing that I saw uh, during the decade. It, it's one of my early you know, screening invites that I got. You know, when I started doing this, because it was, um, e we got it in Dallas in 2014, but its initial release was in 2013. And I just remember we got to the screening, and I remember we got there, and typically they'll have like production notes for certain movies uh, when they send these invites to us but the production notes will be attached to the email. When we got to under the skin, 
they printed out a booklet like and i'm assuming jonathan glazer had something to do with it but like it was explaining everything not in terms of like uh because we're dumb and we don't understand the movie but they gave it to us for for context and like you know this is why jonathan chose to do this or whatever and like it was a thick little little packet and i was like okay this is going to be an experience and i will tell you what if you are not ready for this movie you're going to walk out of it within the first five minutes because it doesn't get going until the first five minutes. And by get going, I mean, doesn't change the shot. Uh, Joel is absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Joel is correct. There's really no story. It's very loose. It just kind of feels like you're following this so-called thing across, you know, uh, Ireland and we're just seeing how it functions. And that's basically it. But it's done in such a nightmarish, you know, kind of scenario. It's uh, really just kind of something to to behold. Like, I remember the first time I, I walked out of that thing. And I didn't want to comprehend it. I really didn't. I was like, I don't know what I saw. Like, did I even like that? And it wasn't until I rewatched it. Uh, I bought it on Blu-ray and I rewatched it and I realized that I was dumb for not getting everything. And it is a slow burn. It is something that takes its time. It doesn't, it doesn't rush anything. It's very weird in some sections. Some of the stuff you're going to be like, what is going on here? I can't understand these bypassers here uh, with their accent. Like, it's just there's some things uh, to this movie that you will you will scratch your head at when you first watch it. But I think the more you watch it, the more you will realize it is one of the best movies about humanity and the representation of humans and just how despicable we are and how, you know, loving and caring we can be like, you know, the yin and yang of our our you know, species like this is what Scarlett Johansson's character witnesses when she's on earth. And, you know, Joel was right about the beach scene. I mentioned the, uh, the forest scene last week, uh, like what Joel said without spoiling anything, there's, you know, a certain thing that this creature looks at mm-hmm. that's even more haunting. Cause you know, that the person playing this creature, Scarlett Johansson, is doing kind of a uh, a double, you know, mirror thing going on. But, yeah, it's just, it's really haunting. It's beautiful. It's haunting. The score is one of the best I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I, I still, it still gives me chills. Uh, like, if I close my eyes and you play a certain track, I could probably tell you which scene it's from. I'm typically not good at that stuff when it comes to, like, quizzes or like you know can you uh name this i that that stuff uh my brain can't uh connect the two uh so quickly as as others but for the most part it is one of the few scores to where i I can kind of pinpoint to you like you know what's happening in the scene um it's just a really imaginative film it's something that if you would have taken the book of this particular story they could have easily just made it into some generic you know, uh, alien movie 
uh, that had no meaning or substance. It was just kind of their vapid entertainment that goes in one ear and out the other. But I think Jonathan Glazer challenges you. He makes you think. He forces this movie on you in such an unconventional way that you sit there and absorb this shocking experience. But I think if you can understand the themes that he's got going on, appreciate the technical aspects, appreciate this really kind of subtle but powerful performance from from Scarlet, you'll realize that you watch something special. And I think that's the great thing about filmmaking is that you know, this is this is a movie about really no story. It's a pretty simple story when you look at the, the bare bones of it. But the fact that Glazer took it and elevated it to such a high degree, you know, I, I that's you can't get any better than that. And I think the best way to wrap this up is when I saw the trailer to this movie. Uh, you know, credit quotes don't really get me too hyped up. Uh, sometimes they do. And, you know, I, I take it, uh, just as pure, like, um, like an adrenaline rush where I'm just like, if I'm already excited for a movie and I see credit quotes, I just get more excited if they love it too. But for the most part, it doesn't really affect me. Um, and usually when critics compare movies to certain movies or directors, eh, I, I don't really put in stock into that. But if you watch the Under the Skin trailer, there was one uh, critic quote that uh, made my you know eyes light up, my ears perk up. And that's why I wanted to see the movie is because they said this – it was something to the uh, liking of Jonathan Glazer uh, you know, crafts a movie that Stanley Kubrick would love mm. or Stanley Kubrick would direct. And I'm like, whoa, that is some big shoes to fill. You can't just be saying Kubrick's name willy-nilly like that if it doesn't actually mean anything. And guess what? Uh, that quote is 100,000% correct. Uh, this movie is something Kubrick would do, and I think that's why I like it even more because I'm a huge fan of Kubrick's work. So I, I think um, taking that into to account is, is important. Um it is like a Kubrick film, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that, but it's still wholly original and definitely stands on its own two feet as something really different. Like I, I will guarantee you people that love Scarlett Johansson, I will I'll bet you most people don't even know that she's even in this. And I'll bet I'll I'll bet you they don't even know that this movie even exists. Uh it's just it's just one of those things. And it's one of the earlier, you know, A twenty four entries in their filmography and uh, I, I think it it will shock you at first and stun you because you don't know how to react. But I think you will slowly gain appreciation for it, and it's um it's a movie that knocks you on your butt, and I think uh, you'll like it for that. So I don't know what else more to say, Joel. Uh, it it's it, I think it's the movie that I I think of when I think of experience, uh, rewatchability in terms of like changing my perspective on it, just thinking about it, it is one of the most uh, exciting submissions in this list uh, for me. And it's one of the ones I remember the most uh, that I saw uh, last decade. So I know it's a, a very 
kind of weird picks. Not, I'm sure not a lot of people have seen it, but and you know Joel has it on his list too. But if you want something new, if you want something kind of shocking and just like out there, literally and figuratively, uh, watch this one. Give it a shot. But that uh, that is my my favorite film of the decade, and I would even go as far as to say that one, The Social Network, and Moonlight not only define the decade, but they are masterpieces and a great piece of art in this uh, art form. All right. All right. So for my number one, I want to take everybody back to the fall of 2015. Um, that's when, that's when, uh, that's around the time that you and I met. Is, is, it, is, it, this, uh, <laughs> is this why you brought it up? Is, is there our anniversary already? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, I I didn't get him anything, guys, and he's mad. Okay, it will be five years though this year. Um, uh, this July, I think it is. But anyway, I'm going to take y'all back to 2015, fall of 2015. I was in a class in college back when I was in college, and um, I believe it was a class about the early stages of cinema. And uh, they had a series of extra credit projects that we could do. And one of those came up and it was a showing of a separation. Uh, my number one film of the decade, a separation from director Oscar Faradi. And I was like, you know what? I never saw it. I heard really good things. I might as well see this. You know, it's a movie. Of course I enjoy movies. I might as well get extra credit for this. And so, so, you know, it was not at my uh, um, campus, actually. It was at another campus uh, that was nearer to me uh, than the one that I was going to. So I was like, well, that's, that just makes it even easier. I can just literally go down the street, turn right, go for a few miles, and I'll arrive there. And so, you know, it wasn't – it was more because it was extra credit that I saw it than because it was this director. I had already seen – another one of his movies, um, his film about Ellie, which was technically made back in 2009, but had released in the U.S. in 2015. And uh, so this was technically his follow-up, although for me, uh, for us, or le at least for the U.S., about Ellie was his follow-up, uh, his first film in the U.S. in four years. So I was familiar with his brand of work. I was not prepared though for how hard a separation would hit me uh as soon as it started i was absolutely wrapped up in the lives of its characters who are multifaceted fully human complex nothing about these people is simple easy to easy to uh you know um explain um easy to sympathize with, easy to, uh, you know, kind of be mad at, if you will, if you can be mad at characters. You get that involved, though. Uh, you can be mad at these characters because they seem so completely human. Like, they are, like you're watching a documentary of something that they're going through. Uh, the film stars Payman Mawadi and Leila Hashami as a middle-class middle family living in Tehran, the Iranian capital, with their daughter Tama played by Serena Faradi, the director's daughter, uh, and Nader's father, the, the, the husband's father, um, 
played by Ali Asghar Shabazi, who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And the setup of the plot is that the wife, Simin, wants a divorce, but in Iranian culture, the husband's permission is the final word, and she does not have it. Nader needs Simin to ground him in order to help raise their daughter and also to take care of his father. And he does not want to let go of his wife right now because he cannot. He cannot face that. So Simon is incredible, just very, uh, she, she is, um, she insists. She's very insistent upon this arrangement. She wants to leave. She wants to go off and do her own thing. And uh, so she moves back into her parents while Nader hires the devoutly religious, very pregnant Razier, played by Sare Bayat, to take care of his father uh, while Terma stays with him. Um, everything changes, though, because of one simple thing. While a trash bag is being taken downstairs, it is split open. Yes, that is the thing that changes everyone's lives in this movie. A trash bag being split open while, ta- while being taken down to the trash bin. Uh, the reason is because Nader's father, who again has Alzheimer's and is completely, you know, has dementia, delirium, whatever you want to call it, escapes from the house and is nearly killed in a car accident and Razier uh, saves him. Unfortunately, this arouses Nader's anger, and he lashes out at Razier, accidentally pushing her to the point that she falls down a small flight of stairs, one of the flights of stairs in a big stairwell. And her pregnancy is ended. So there is a, there's the suspicion that he did that on purpose, and there is an investigation that is launched into his uh, involvement in the ending of her pregnancy. Yet, everything is shattered by a single falsehood. And it has nothing to do with any of this here. It's told in desperation to the wrong person at the wrong time. Secrets are revealed. Consequences are carried out. Everything absolutely, completely erupts in this family. And through this telling of this tale, Faradi is able to tap in to an incredibly humanistic story about guilt, about regret, about grief, about marriage, about childhood through the eyes of Terma, who's played by the younger Faradi with absolute, just tremendous emotional difficulty in a courageous performance, one of the best child performances of the whole decade. Um, and you also have Bayat, and Shahab Husseini, who plays Razier's quick-to-anger husband, Hojat, who are devastating here. But the performances that are truly special, the ones that very nearly made my list in kind of the way that you did with um, giving a couple of, uh, giving couples a tie on your list last week, uh, Moadi and Hashami nearly did that for me. They nearly made the list in that capacity. I couldn't do without either of them, and I decided not to do the ties. And they just fell out because of that. But they are both absolutely astonishing in their emotional precision. They're helped along by the screenplay by Faradi, which should have won the Oscar. It was nominated, uh, lost to Midnight in Paris, but it should have it should have won because it is a tremendous balancing act 
um, in terms of our empathy with all of its characters and uh, just in terms of where it goes. And, and uh, I'm probably making this sound like Parasite. I mean, it's not like that at all. Uh, it does play out sort of in that kind of a thriller kind of way that Faraday uh, specializes in and has specialized in throughout the decade. One of the filmmakers of the decade, in my opinion, uh, because of that. But no, it is it isn't a thriller so much it is as it is a slightly heightened, uh, very 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 realistic and grounded melodrama. Um, it has melodramatic plot uh, elements. It itself is not melodramatic in how it plays those, uh, but it is a study of strict and cultural and social guidelines that are used to uh, maintain privilege for the privileged and to undermine the underrepresented. And it's absolutely devastating. Every single inch of this movie works from beginning to end. Um, is it the most cinematic movie of all time? Is it something that is a visionary work of work of art, you know, on an aesthetic level? No, but it is meticulously made. It's crafted uh, with precision by Faradi, by film editor Hayade Safiyari, by cinematographer Mahmoud Kalari. Everybody here is working on uh, at a top-notch pace and rhythm, and the the um, the screenplay is just a marvel. Um, and uh, the dialogue is beautiful. It it has the richness of of Mamet and Storkin and all of it, but it isn't uh, quip-heavy or anything like that. It's incredibly naturalistic. It's just that the words that are chosen in the order that they're chosen are not the, uh, the ones that you anticipate, and it's uh, beautifully written. So, yeah, for me, there was no other movie this year that, or this, this year, this decade that, that moved me or had me so thoroughly in the grip of itself than... than Asghar Faradi's Separation. It's one that everybody needs to see. It's one of the most crucial uh, viewing experiences that I've had, especially now that we have even more, um, you know, a, a lot of um, problems in the Middle East and, and, and in the Middle East and stuff. For Americans to watch this, I think it's, it's important because there's so much animosity toward that area that a movie that is empathetic enough to uh, connect us to a story being told over there is really something right now. And um, yeah, it's a tremendous, tremendous piece of storytelling, screenwriting, directing. I just can't say good enough things about it. Um, I might go on another 15 minutes. It's, it's that good. And um, yeah, so of all the movies, it was this one that I saw randomly for an extra credit project. I might not have seen it otherwise. It's not super available on DVD, although there is a DVD for it, and I think that there's a Blu-ray as well. If you want to seek that out, please do so, because it is truly something. And um, yeah, so that is my number one, A Separation. Chase has not seen it. I despise him. I hate his guts, uh, and that's and that's totally okay. I know that he hates my guts sometimes too, but, um, but that's a marriage. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, that is my list. Uh, Chase, let's let's recap. So what what was what were your ten? Just really quickly, run back through them. 
Right. So uh, 10, uh, Avengers Endgame. 9, Inside Out. 8, Logan. 7, Before Midnight. 6, Whiplash. 5, Parasite. 4, The Master. 3, Moonlight. 2, The Social Network. And number 1, Under the Skin. All right. And at number 10, I had Drive. At number 9, Her. At number 8, The Social Network. At number 7, Lady Bird. At number 6, Under the Skin. At number 5, The Tree of Life. At number 4, Moonlight. At number 3, I had Margaret. Shoplifters came in at number 2. And at number 1, the best film of the 2010s without really not much competition, Oscar Faradiz's A Separation. And that'll do it, guys. That is our list of the best films of the decade. Um... Chase, I can't wait for 2030, <laughs> when, roughly February, when we come to talk about the best films of the 2020s, because I'm excited for the decade ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just very pleased with our lists. I'm pleased with this episode to get a little bit meta-referential. I'm, I'm pleased with how this all turned out. We didn't go too long, and uh, yeah. That's it for this episode. So next week, we are back in the saddle with reviews. We are going to review The Invisible Man. I will offer up an extra review of The Call of the Wild to, you know, uh, rewind the clock one week. And I'm sure that there will be trailers that we're talking about. Um, But if this has been your first episode, thank you for joining us for this first episode. It's nothing like our other episodes. (laughs) But, uh, But yeah. It's uh, this has been fun and uh, Chase. Where can people find you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Real Me In uh, Podcast. And of course, for this podcast itself, our hosting base is Anchor.fm. And of course, all the links in the description will be down below. But a couple of things. Um, if you are listening on any other platform, uh, thank you for choosing that platform. Uh, but please spread this episode around. And let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to. And there's links down below to leave a voice message or support us uh, in any way, shape, or form. You're more than welcome to. You don't have to. But it is there as an option. All right. And if you want to find me, my writing is at joelonfilm.com. All of it is at least featured there, although I also have words at dallasmoviescreenings.com occasionally and now spectrum culture um this week i have a lot of reviews (laughs) so uh the call of the wild i mentioned i'll be talking about that in depth next week but i do have a review of that as well as the assistant uh the last thing he wanted which is on netflix now um i have the night clerk uh standing up falling down and my first spectrum culture review the times of bill cunningham you can find those all there uh you can also follow my ramblings on twitter at real joel copeling that's r-e-e-l-j-o-e-l-c-o-p-l-i-n-g and uh search my name on letterboxd and i'm there you can follow my progress every day um yeah so that's where i am that has been episode 315 next week we're gonna go invisible uh to review elizabeth moss in blumhouse's new thriller can't wait to see what happens in that movie. So, uh, yeah, Chase, take us out. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'm excited for that because I'm a huge Lee Winnell fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, even when I was uh, at the wonderful age of 13, I was just uh, really blown away by the first ever twist uh, in Saw for the first time. And 
I just love this guy's work. So next week should be a lot of fun. But that's right, Joel. This has been episode 315. Next week, 316. Let us know all your thoughts of everything that we talked about down below. That is Joel. I am Chase. You guys are great. This has been another episode of Real Man Colon, a movie podcast. Peace out. See you next week. Bye.